This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Hello, Nubians. Hello. Uh, we are here. Um, how is everyone? Uh, I hope everyone's safe and healthy. Um, learning a lot about grace during this time. I grace. Grace. It's so important. Grace. Uh, hi, Dr. Carr. Hey, how you doing, Professor Hunter? I'm so glad to see you. I'm here, man. It's a, it's a weird period of time to be in, and I'm not, you know, going to double down and lean in on what is happening globally, but... Um, Oh, it's lovely. In fact, I'm so, in fact, I wanted to today, but, you know, sisters had other plans. You know how black women are. This ancestor today was like, nah, just, just say less about that. Maybe next week. Um, I, I'm fortunate enough to have not put both my copies of this in storage. So I looked around till I found Alison Blakey's book, um, Russia and the Negro, Blacks and Russian History and Thought. Alison Blakey was a professor at the time. Here he is. He was a professor at the time at Howard University. Um, this is actually published by Howard University Press. Yes, Howard had a press. Uh, wow. They seem to have gotten a little amnesia about that. Wow. Now they've reached a deal in the last year or two with Columbia University to uh, co-edit a, uh, a a Black Studies uh, imprint with under the Columbia University Press aegis, which is cute. Number one, it's not Black Studies. Uh, number two, uh, it's Columbia University Press. And when they reached me for comment, um one of the one of the publications my comment was i just chuckled <laughs> in the words of ice cube let's play now let's play big bank take little bank i said the howard forget it had a press <laughs> anyway uh and then they ended up not ever making an official announcement i think they're waiting for it to die down but uh this was from 1986 so uh, actually this is an early picture uh dr blakey traces the who's on the other who's the picture on the on that side and well, sure. this is just it they really didn't know what to do with uh, this is from the late 1800s, early 1800s, actually. That is a pob who uh, is a person of African descent. But in Russia, they didn't know how to narrate black people. So they lumped them in with the Arabs at the time. <laughs> and uh, at least one strain of Af the, the black presence in Russia, uh, the country, before you get to the Soviet Union, because what Blakey does is take it all the way back from Imperial Russia, actually before that. Uh, to um, the Soviet Union, and so, but but one strain comes from enslaved people who were brought there, chiefly through uh, regions like Turkey, um, uh, by Muslims, by Arabs, and that would take you back as far as the 15th century. And okay. 16th century, but the other strain, which Blakey acknowledges, which is where I think we'll maybe talk about this next week because we'll have some time. Uh, we really get into it. Um, the other strain is fascinating because this is where Shake Out the Joke and them really get into it. Blakey acknowledges and does not refute because he says the evidence has not yet been fleshed in a way that could deny or confirm the writing that goes all the way back in the European side or at least the non African side. I won't say because the Greeks weren't white at the time they were there they got folded in later that's a story from martin bernal and them among others but um herodotus and them who say when they went up there they called them the Colchians by the black sea and they said that we think that they came here as early as the expeditions that the egyptians sent under the one the greeks call sesostris uh, he's known as sinosrit his name is sinosrit in the meta nature 
but so so Blakey is like you can't uh disprove it and you the only confirmation you have is in those ancient sources so if i had to pick i'd say it's probably more likely than not that there were african expeditions up in what we now call russia as early as and you talk about Middle Kingdom, that's when Wall Street. So we're talking about maybe for us 3,500 years ago. So some of those Africans there, in fact, claim that they're so it's a fascinating story. But anyway, this is this is the book you want to start with. We're talking about the Ukraine and what no, 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 no. If you talk about black people, Russia and the Negro, blacks and Russian history and thought, he goes through all of them. We'll talk about it next week, but of course, because I clumsily tried to drop breadcrumbs on my radio show talking about the Africans that made their way there in, in the 1700s. Yes. Uh, while folk were enslaved in the New World, people were finding their way to Russia. And that was interesting. Um, and Pushkin and all of this. So that's right. You know, it, was, it was interesting. And, and then and a brother who acted on the stage in the 19th century, Ira Aldridge. I don't know if y'all talked about him. No, I I, I said Aldridge. I clumsily. Oh no, 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 that's not no. But you're talking about the same people. I mean, the same re area, right? We were enslaved here. Yeah, yeah. and uh, apparently there too, but not yeah. not the Pushkin, um, but not uh, and you know Ira Aldridge, Nubians. Remember, we finished the Souls of Black Folk two weeks ago, and that chapter of Alexander Cromwell. Alexander Cromwell went to school. Uh, well, he went to the same school that Ira Aldridge went to. You know, Ira Aldridge was the actor who traveled through Europe, came through Russia. Uh, Ira Aldridge, who was Paul one of Paul Robeson's models, uh, they went to the he, Aldridge went to New York African Free School. So he was from the U.S. during that period you're talking about. So it was not that's not clumsy at all because it's not it's counterintuitive. People think Russia is white. That ain't true. Can I ask you this on that? Um, because I know like Richard Wright and some others were bolstered by communist Russia yes. uh, when white America wouldn't give people the opportunity to publish and write. Absolutely. Are, are, have, have they always seen us as a pawn on the board to be used and, and uh, to undermine or to, Aren't you know, like, yeah. So I'm just, I'm asking a rhetorical question, I right. guess. Yeah, no, you are. No, I mean, no, no, no. Everybody sees everybody as a pawn. I mean, this is what we talked about last week in terms of sovereignty. If you are a people, then you have interests. Now, the question is, do your interests as a people coincide with broader human interests? And the answer to that is always yes. But if you are either as an organized kind of social polity, uh, overly aggressive, we see empire building. Empire building ain't never done anybody any good. This is Ayikwe Armand's critique that we talked about when we were reading last week uh, in office hours on Monday night when we read those two chapters from uh, the uh, Wadden Shemsu, the way to follow us, what he's saying is, you know, hierarchy in that form, imperial hierarchy is never good, whether it's the ancient Egyptians, whether it's Ganamali or Songhai or any, or whether it's, you know, any other empire anywhere else in the world, the Azteca, the Inca, you know, whether you start talking about the Mayans, where you, whether you talk about uh, the Swedes who were in charge, who were really fighting up there. We talked about that a little bit last week when we were talking about Peter, the so-called great and the Russians. Empire building always displaces people, regardless of the intent. So, I mean, that's on one end of the spectrum. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, though, you have people who try to get along and organize their cultures and their logics around cooperation. And that also is what our mind is drawing from. That's why he says we have to consult these ancient sources that we then contemporize and bring forward. Now, wh where that converges, and, and like I said, I think maybe if those who are thinking about, you know, let's think a week ahead. Let's spend some time with the, the African people engaging 
that region that we're now all been drawn to by the governance structure conversations around the Ukraine and, and, and Putin and all this, you know, reducing it to like WWF style wrestling, looking for good guys and bad guys. And as we said, John Ricard said in some stories, it ain't no bad guys. By the way, I'm rocking our sister, our Kentucky sister with the John Henry Clark book on the side. This is what it's all about. Nubians. Yes, indeed. Our sister, young sister. I hope she's tuning in today. But at any rate. So, yes, yes. When after the revolutions of 1917, well, actually before that, but and Blakey covers that ground, too. You see this attempt to bring into the world a, an application of the theoretical models of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels and V.I. Lenin, who, of course, is himself in Russia, you know, doing this struggle um, to think through and operationalize a different way of being in the world that is grounded in the notion of doing the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Now, theoretically, we can talk about communism. We can talk about socialism, you know, where the state uh, is the are the owners of the means of production. The state runs the industries uh, for the benefit of the people, not just theoretically, but practically. And of course, when we look at, and we'll talk about this some more next week, when we look at a guy like Vladimir Putin, who was really brought into the, the formal, the higher, the upper echelons, rose through the up, to the upper echelons of, of Russian government after, of course, the uh, the end of the Soviet Union. So maybe we'll, you know, talk about Gorbachev and some of that glass nose stuff. But then Boris Yeltsin, you know, Yeltsin is the one who elevates Putin. But Putin then accelerates uh, after Yeltsin, you know, for whatever reasons. And there are any number of reasons we could talk about without return, turning it into a cartoonish interpretation, which would be like, oh, he's alcoholic. So that's why he failed. No, it's a lot more than that. But Putin's rise is enabled by this, this plutocracy and this billionaire class of Russians. But one of the, in fact, the main way they became billionaires is because with the breakup of the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union then committing to a different kind of form, uh, so the Russians rather, committing to a different form of, of government and, and economic system, a lot of those industries that had previously been owned by the state and operated by the state, the socialist model, were then privatized. And that's what, those, that's what a lot of those billionaires came from. And, and Putin is able to play them into a force which uh, he is able to ride on by enabling their criminal enterprise that comes in the way. Now, of course, what we're seeing right now, and like I said, we'll see as this unfolds over the next week, some of them billionaires is peeling off from him because this is like, bruh, you you little extra right now. And so you're seeing some interesting things. In fact, the Financial Times had a headline yesterday where uh, one of them uh, resigned they're resigning from international uh, economic organizations and they're making statements. It's like, this is not cool because these are the wind. This is the wind beneath your wings. I still like to say this. When you raise the question of whether or not, you know, we're being used as pawns or were used by pawns by the Soviets at the time as they built the USSR as related to as it relates to the ideological thrust. Well, the answer to that is yes. And the answer to that is no, in the sense that. The idea of the communist internationals, the idea of the common terms, the idea of spreading this revolution through the world uh, was being fueled by people who wanted to create a different form of human social organization, one that was not as or even at all exploitative. 
And that, of course, is a noble intent. But intention don't get you but so far because that is something that had to displace two things. Number one, whatever country they were going to try to make that theory real in terms of lived experience, you got to displace the structure that's already there. And it just so happened that czarist and then post-czarist Russia was the place where it came into existence. And the other thing you have to displace is a world system that is connected based on capitalism. You know, this is the analysis of Marx and, and those who come in his wake, his colleagues, his comrades, and those who come after him. But it's real nice when you're sitting in, in the British Museum Library for 11, 12, 13 hours a day writing capital. It's quite another thing to go out in the street and make it happen. You can reduce those brand theories and those telephone-sized books to a statement where you kind of create, get the essential elements out. And Marx and Engels published the Communist Manifesto, something that's still being read today, and introduce, not introduce, join a strategy that, you know, the, the so-called pamphleteer strategy, as people call it. Uh, looking over there, Muammar Gaddafi's Green Book, Mao Zedong's Red Book, those little books where, you know, you can kind of reduce to the basic principles. But then you got to operationalize it. So you're doing it in a system of states. We talked last week about, you know, the whole going all the way back to the Treaty of Westphalia in Europe and the system of nation states. You're doing it in a system that's not going to go without a uh, fight and that is very deeply and firmly entrenched. So there are going to be state interests that coincide with something like that. I mean, they took over a state in Russia, but that means that the state interests are going to be there as well. And then here we are, African people, either, and I'm thinking born from Ryan Walters now, Pan-Africanism in the African diaspora. You've got African people who are either in places that are colonies during this period. Now I'm talking about the 1930s, 40s, 20s, 30s, 40s. 50s. That means virtually all of Africa, not Ethiopia, and by 1950, you know, not the Sudan, then not Ghana, and the people are coming out of, of colonialism. Um, former colonies that are fighting their way out, that are now forming their first governments controlled by the majority of the people, at least people voting the majority, and that would be like in the Caribbean for example, whether it be Jamaica, whether it be Trinidad and Tobago, so forth and so on, um, Central America, Latin America, whether it be Grenada, ultimately in places like that, or the countries in Latin America where non-whites are the majority, like uh, Chile, right, you know, or Brazil. I mean, so, but, but who is coming to power are people who have been powerless in this capitalist system, so they are looking for ways to build a different type of society. And so, this idea of communism, this idea of socialism, this idea, well, socialism and communism, this idea, these ideas appeal to them. The ideas appeal to them. The ideals appeal to Julius Nereri in Tanzania. They appeal to Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana. They appeal to Patrice Lumumba in the Congo. They appeal to these African leaders who are looking for a way to go, but they're looking for a way to go in a world system that likes it the way it is, because this is the system built by Western Eurasians and their empires, which are fraying at the edges and collapsing, they're not ready to give up control. So when the United Nations is formed in 1945, and you get all these people in the same room increasingly year after year after year as new, new countries join, and they come here talking that stuff about we need a collective ownership or we need to... Yeah, the rhetoric, now nah, hold on, them people communists. So this is the Cold War is now broken out, and people got to pick sides. And we talked about that last week, the non-aligned movement, and all, you know, people are trying to figure out what to do, but we're, we're talking about ideas that are 
the, the attempt is made to convert them into reality in a real world where the system is very different and 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 hierarchy likes it the way it is now notice there is a group that i didn't mention that would be the negroes in the united states where we are a decided numerical minority where we don't have a common political framework or cultural grounding that is robust enough to sustain the type of organizational structure where we could all move in one direction where uh class stratification has been delayed you know folks like adolf reed would say and i would agree with him on this by apartheid in the u.s known as jim crow so the black elite haven't escaped and so there there is the perception of common interests and there are common interests however what you're going to see after 19 uh, the 1950s as we move through the civil rights movement is that those class interests began to emerge even more and more and more so the black you know economic folk uh, economically the folks who have a little bit more money you know, nobody got no real money but you know anytime you start counting the black people who have real money you can still name them you know black people ain't got no real money but they I mean, you know, well, we have so and so and so and so. Yeah, you you still counting? Oh, bro, get, come on, man, come on, don't embarrass yourself. But the point is that they, you know, are still kind of close enough to the black community where the shared interest is still governing whatever mass movements there are. And uh, and we, we'll talk more about this next week. We get into this, but anyway. But the point is this: this is why I end with this because you ask, you know, are we being used? I think what ends up happening there is two things. In fact, let me just reach across here. Because I had Nintendo doing this, but I think because as I said, the sister decided she wanted us to talk about her a little bit today. So we are. So you have theoreticians who are very clear that some of this theory and stuff that, that Marx and them are contributing that's being played out in real time in places like the Soviet Union and other places where this has been exported some of these ideas including the united states because as you say langston hughes and you know allison blakey is writing about that too but there's a ton of bookshelf of books on that uh folks who go to the soviet union you know james robinson and them um uh, uh of course langston hughes claude mckay so many others uh paul robeson eventually um who goes and so many others and then come back and come out of the soviet union come out of russia saying well i saw a much better society for us than the one i live in which of course puts them on the suspect list in uh, an increasingly paranoid u.s federal structure you've got that group but you've also got africans from other places who are doing the same thing one of the most prominent of which and we'll talk about him uh, some more next week is a brother a guyanese cat named walter rodney walter rodney didn't live to see 40 years old because he was an intellectual he was an academic he was a teacher he was a researcher he was an organizer and he got himself involved in political process because he's trying to apply these ideas in the real world and they put a car bomb they put a bomb under his car and he was killed in 1980 and but during the time he was traveling in africa and working in africa he was at the university of dar es salaam he spent time in atlanta gave came gave lectures at the institute of the black world fascinating figure we'll talk more about him um, he gave a series of lectures that he put together. And well, he didn't put together, he intended to put together, then he was killed. They've eventually they were eventually published. They were only published uh about four years ago. This is a book called The Russian Revolution, A View from the Third World. Walter Walter Rodney, my friend Robin Kelly is one of the co-editors. Actually, Robin transcribed the uh the tapes from Rodney's lectures when he was a graduate student, when, when uh, now Professor Kelly, Dr. Kelly out of UCLA, um, was a graduate student out there many, many years ago. 
But I raise that because Rodney goes into the archive and absorbs all that stuff, everything that was available, at least in English, Marx, Engels, all this stuff, all the contemporary reports that are Soviet Union's the common turn work brings all that together. And then he says, OK, now as I'm absorbing this, I'm studying it with these black students who from all over Africa and other places at the University of Dar es Salaam. And we're thinking through this in real time as to how this would look for black people. So what he gives is ultimately what he calls an African perspective on the Russian Revolution. And he's saying, we don't need to borrow from them. There are principles that are absolutely useful, but we need to think through this as black people. So it's a very, it's, it's an intriguing kind of prospect and it's a daunting one, but it's one that he demonstrates a, a great deal of brilliance in trying to, to bring together. And so when you ask, are we being used? The answer is yes, we're always being used. All humans are being used in a state system where the political, those in control of the political apparatus always have different interests. So the idea that, you know, Stalin uh, or, and we'll talk about that next week on the national question, what to do with the Negroes in the United States. At the same time that they're debating over how black people in the United States should be viewed as part of the working class or the proletariat or the lumping proletariat, you know, at the same time, they're debating what that means in terms of the national question of a nation and a nation. Should they be integrated with the white, white or workers, of course. So how do we do that? At the same time, black people got their own ideas. In fact, mm -hmm. Robert wrote his his um his doctoral dissertation, which turned into his first book, Hammer and Ho, Black Communists in Alabama during the Great Depression. And, uh, and and when you see that, what you realize is it's a lot of people who the social structure in this country tries to get us to narrate as, you know, they just want an integration and you know, democracy in America. And this is what America really should look like. Yeah, oh, that's cool. If you want to just leave out the fact that uh, uh, Rose and Raymond Parks were involved with people who were black and also in the Communist Party and adjacent to the Communist Party, and they raising money for the Scottsboro Boys in the 1930s at Ray, at Rosa Park and Raymond Park's house. And at the same time, the NAACP and them was a little nervous about supporting the Scottsboro Boys and all this. And then who jumps in and says, we'll defend them, we'll do it. Y'all raise the money, we'll, we'll, we'll defend them. The Communist Party. And, you know, can we just keep Miss Parks on that Cleveland Avenue bus? We're trying to sell these Barbie dolls, and, and we don't really need y'all to start talking about this communism. <laughs> I mean, so, but Black people got their own ideas about how to apply this stuff. And that's why we have to have a governance structure category in any Africana studies framework, not just saying, I'm talking about Black people, so that's Black studies. Yeah, that's cute. To the left, to the left, to the left. <laughs> we have a governance category. We, we got a methodology. We have to ask who we are to each other. So are we being used? Yes. Are we have our own ideas? Yes. And both of those things exist at the same time. And I, I brought it up. First of all, Sherlina said, that's my baby on your shirt. And she's at equestrian practice. She's Oh, know, she riding that horse. She's riding, riding horses. And so she will be watching later when she, when she comes <laughs> back from from riding horses. Um, well, you know what? You better ride that horse. They in Kentucky, right? Was it Frankfurt? I forget the city. I think it is Frankfurt, Kentucky. They in uh, Frankfurt, right? Y'all yeah. in Frankfurt. That's all right. Well, we've been riding horses there since before anybody else could ride them. So I get that. I, I wait, when that. is derby season? I, we missed it. We missed, I, I don't pay attention to that. Nah, but Frankfurt is shout out to the Kentucky State at the HBCU in the state capital. Their nickname, of course, the Thoroughbreds. So anyway, so Kentucky State University, Frankfort, Kentucky. Yes, I, I brought up, I brought up that. And I know we're going to get a deep dive next week because you know, as we watch nations tumble, they've always tumbled, and it's weird right. that humanity is like we're supposed to be students of history. There's not one nation, not one empire that hasn't tumbled. 
That's and right. I don't care how well, and they borrowed the Greeks, borrowed from this, borrowed from that, the Egyptians, they, you know, the, the Brits borrowed from, and, and the British Empire, which was supposed to never fall, has fallen. Uh, that monarchy might even be done. Uh, I think Queen Elizabeth's going to be the last queen, in my in my opinion. But, you know, it's ta-ta. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking at where we are as this very young nation, America, and it's on the brink of tumbling, and it ain't even you know, as old as any of the others. And so I asked the question and it's a little rhetorical at the same time, maybe unanswerable, but I think the next model has to be, and they did this and I don't think they meant to do this, but they created a global citizenry around melanin. And people start because there's there's so many more. (laughs) That I think might be hard to crush if everybody with melanin recognizes that they have the actual power globally to put an end or to start or to create or to that. So that's just my thought. I was thinking about that. Uh, I agree. No, no, no. This, this man right here, John Henry Clark used to always say, he said, you know, if everybody black in the world who has been categorized as black decided to do the same thing at the same time one day, even if it was wrong, and Clark was very deliberate about saying this. Even if it were wrong, it would change the world. And so he used to, you know, I mean, but 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 I, but I raised that for this reason. When you say that, Sonny, you you're really pointing out two things that are very important. Number one, demographic isn't a political ideology; isn't an organization. So when people say, you know, we're black, we should be able. Well, who it is we? Blackness is not a political category until you make it one and we can all agree we don't want to be oppressed and if common oppression is the thing we're working on then we are able to organize we've been able to organize in the past to at least push back against those kind of things this is why adolf reed again in his recent book the south jim crow and his afterlife says this the country i was born into in new orleans and then raised between new orleans brooklyn Arkansas and then going off to graduate school, going off to school in Atlanta and then working in North Carolina and then ultimately traveling the world, but doing real world organizing work. The country I was born into an apartheid, that country is different than now. We've made a lot of progress because there was a common enemy and that demographic black was able to push back against it successfully enough to at least get those overt laws off the book. And even when those overt laws were on the books, there were ways that we negotiated them that showed our agency. And he talks about that a lot in terms of class, in terms of region. You know, even before Jim Crow was over, there were ways that black people had figured out ways to subvert it. But ultimately that was vanquished, but that demographic vanquished it because it, it because of that law applied to that demographic. But as he says, once that has been removed, the things that beset people in a capitalist system began to erode even that type of unity. Now you're talking about a black economic class that can leave that maybe never really wanted to be there in the first place, but they were trapped by Jim Crow. So them Negroes is moving on up <laughs> to the east side. Yeah, I finally got a piece of the pie. We be singing that song and then look at the class critique. Fish don't burn in the kitchen. Beans don't burn on the grill. They critiquing the black poor for the conditions of poverty. Took a whole lot of trying just to get up that hill. Where you going? <laughs> I finally got a piece of the pie, deuces. Yeah. 
fish don't burn in the kitchen. In other words, this is this is Lorraine Hansberry trying to grapple with the implications of that black class trying to move away in the raising in the sun. Except we all laugh at here come George Jefferson with the white neighbors, Joyce and Wheezy, and then here come the interracial cups, old Roxy Roker, Howard Grant, you know, her white husband, and this is what this is okay. Now what y'all gonna do? What you gonna do? Well. If you're talking about we in terms of black people at that stage, you're gonna have to be a little bit more complicated than that because class has always been there, but now it's really going to be revealed. And what W.E.B. Du Bois challenged those black school teachers in at, uh, Johnson C. Smith University um, in 1960, when he gave his famous speech, Whither Now and Why, he said, when these laws change, you're gonna have to answer the real questions, the underlying questions that run of race and culture. And I think, you know, Adolf Reed and others would say, and class. And so it's potential, as you say, there's a group, there's a, there's a, there's a transnational melanated citizenry. If we can populate that demographic with a political imaginary and a cultural imaginary that can convert that demographic into a force in the world that can transform human social organization. And as Charlie Cobb, wrote when they went to Tanzania, he and his snick comrades, Bob Moses and them, and they all went to East Africa and lived there. And then, you know, traveling back and forth, Moses now ancestor, brother Charlie still making, you know, Hale and Hardy, he and his wife swinging with both fists. What you recognize is that there are transnational groupings within that demographic, but that class is one of the ways they are grouped. There's an international Negro bourgeoisie. Them same black Americans that travel to Africa, get off the plane and be like, boy, I'll be glad we get to the hotel with air conditioning. Whatever. They, they have friends who are indigenous Africans sitting up in Lagos and Accra, sitting up in, <laughs> in the capital cities in they high rises with the servants and saying, well, they're servants, but we actually, it helps them because, you know, we pay them and then they're able to send people to school and their families. And so, yeah, and where is the air conditioning? I mean, yeah, them people there, them Negroes, the active fool in Africa, the same people that active fool at wherever they from. Then them saying, hey, I ain't messing with these N-words over here. Yet. Yeah, well, y'all carry that same attitude because there's an international class distinction that you're making. And that class distinction was always in black communities. But we, our challenge is to, well, one of our challenges is to think, can we knit together out of this demographic group that is, has a common set of circumstances that we have faced over the last several centuries can we knit together a, a transnational group that the uh, that the crew doesn't, you know, that 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 weaponizes our identity? Some people say that's identity politics. I don't agree with that necessarily because I think when we people who give an identity criticism to the idea of a black identity don't. Well, let me not let me not say that. Let me. Because I don't want to overburden what I'm about to say, but I'll but I'll say this. I think one and part of our work here is to commit ourselves to answering as best we can the question of whether or not there are cultural inheritances that can be useful in helping to build better human societies that come out of African people. And that is the challenge that Aikwe Ma gives us. That is the challenge that in Nubia, we are beginning to equip ourselves with the tools to be able to answer by learning the Egyptian language. Say, well, what's, what's ancient Egypt got to do it today? I don't have any uh, health care today. And, you know, I'm, I need a better job today. Okay, these are not mutually exclusive things. 
some of the answers to collectivism, some of the answers to working together and, 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 and the principles that we can operationalize now, and we've been living all along in some ways, can be found in pre-colonial Africa, in colonial Africa, in contemporary Africa, in contemporary African populations, wherever you find them. And we owe it to ourselves while we are doing these social justice, social justice work and organizing and communicating and trying to build on our common human identity to try to figure out how ways to create better. We owe it to ourselves to ask ourselves, are there better solutions to be found in our memory? But that means recovering our memory. So uh, yeah, I didn't mean to get too far off on the, uh, yeah, the, the Jefferson's metaphor was basically because you see the classism right there. And it's all funny because everybody want to live in a deluxe apartment in the sky. I guess I'm, you know, I mean, it's a lot of headaches come with it. But we learned the lessons to, that I end with this on this subject. We learned the lessons that you're raising, Professor Hunter, as children. We don't think of them that way, but a well-known, for for example, <laughs> that's funny, a well-known children's rhyme, a children's little ditty that was sung to many uh, many folks in the cradle, was about. Structural change, political, social revolution, and a change in the political economy from a state where the monarchy is in charge of everything to a society where those who are in the elites, but not part of the blood, uh, the blood genealogy that would give a king and a queen, they want to push back. Now, we you, we learned it in elementary and in high school and junior high school, middle school and college as Magna Carta. We learned it as, you know, these landed lords trying to push back against the, 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 the monarchy and saying that, you know, there should be some form of representative government and this kind of thing. And of course, that opens the door to the possibility of those who are in the economic system below those landlords saying, yeah, and while we out here surfing, we trying to be against you, too, because all of y'all. But we learned it. We didn't learn all that until we got to school. But as children, everybody remembers the rhyme Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Who is Humpty Dumpty? Humpty Dumpty is the royalty. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men. Yeah, they, they really couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. That's a revolution. That If you look at the roots of the Humpty Dumpty, right, it comes back from medieval England. They're fighting against the monarchy. And in fact, the other little saw you were seeing the babies. Because what happens when you're not going to get, you know, you're going to body the king. You ain't going to just body the queen. Because when the king and the queen get together, they have the prince and the princess. So you, you ain't going to get rid of them by just getting rid of the king and the queen. They got some kids. We're going to have to body them all. Go back to Tsarist Russia. You know, but anyway, in England, that turns into a rhyme too. Rock-a-bye, baby, in the treetop. Where did they send the child to try to protect it? Ah. Rock-a-bye, baby, in the treetop. When the wind blows. The cradle will rock. What's the wind? When the bow breaks, the cradle will fall. We're going to kill you next. We see where they hid you. Shake the tree. Shake the tree. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. And when the bow breaks, the cradle will fall. And down will come cradle. Baby and all, it's over for the monarchy. You understand? Now, of course, that's real harmless when you're singing it to a three-month-old. But understand, we understand that societies change even from childhood. 
Were there subversive songs that Africans sang to their babies to overthrow the, the damn oppression? I mean, I'm just I'm sitting here like oh, yeah. all these things are hidden. We should do a lesson just on that because that just, mm -hmm. ooh. Well, there's a there's a book called what is it? Uh, Three hundred years of children's literature in Europe. I got I got a, I got it right here somewhere. Maybe it's in storage. Anyway, all them stories. I mean, that's what you. But see, those stories emerge from societies where that type of oppression is imminent it's right they're not imminent it's there they're living in it in terms of africana societies and you turn now we turn to our third category conceptual category after um social structure and governance structure ways of knowing what ways did africans create to make sense of the world they live in well, wherever you were on the african continent what seems to emerge as a common thread is the sense of cooperation is the sense of family and some of it could be attributed to the fact that these were largely agrarian societies although they weren't all agrarian for sure the things you kind of sang to your children and talk to your children were more in the form of proverbs so of course the most famous of which to survive to this day are ones that don't we don't think of in terms of africa because we haven't been taught that aesop was a was a greek gloss on the word ethiop which of course means ethiopia black so aesop's fables uh, from the uh, the enslaved African who taught these Greek children that he was in the house of those if you if you know Aesop's fables then you're looking at African morality tales and you're not looking you're not looking at a lot of human beings in those stories you, we like to use animals and you know animals are a lot less you know it separates you from humanity in one way and it also allows you to teach the values in a different way so about greed about gluttony, about Aesop's fables really are about what happens when you try to take advantage of somebody else. And so they're very, I mean, the Aesop's fables are part of the uh, cultural meaning making family to go to another of our categories. You know, what, what songs, what dance, what art, what cultural texts and practices did Africans create to mark their moments in time. Aesop's fables are in of, of a piece in the, in the constellation in the universe with the Anansi stories of West Africa. Uh, with the stories of the Orisha in West Africa. I mean, you start you start reading and start listening, start getting those stories, and those stories do jump the Atlantic. They come with us. They find their ways into the stories that populate the Caribbean. Yeah, I know those stories, those spider stories, those monkey stories in the Caribbean, the signifying monkey in the southern part of the United States, uh, the rabbit stories that eventually Joel Chandler Harris from the social structure overhears and then tries to come, you know, uh, 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 Br'er Rabbit, as he would say. Those are all African stories. Then, of course, they jump as the technology changes over the time and they are suppressed from their original African origins and used for profit. They make their way into the popular imagination. For example, there's an, the echo of Africana jumps from those Anasi stories and those Eshu stories out of that what we call Nigeria now, the uh, Eshu stories. If you look at um among the Yoruba, Eshu is a figure who carries the Ashe, the power to make things happen. And and the ashe is the most powerful thing that we have. It's the thing that animates us. But 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 Eshu, you know, you gotta be careful. You think you're gonna sneak up on Eshu and trick Eshu, Eshu gonna trick you. So he's often read as a trickster. I mean, there's again another shelf. Toya and Falola has an excellent book on Eshu. If I went over and got, I showed that to y'all before. Henry Lewis Gates, early on in his career, wrote a book called The Signifying Monkey, where he tries to trace that with the influence of some of his jegnas and others like the great Wale Shoyenka out of Nigeria, you're by a writer and, and, and cultural worker. You know, it traces, it comes across the Atlantic. So, you know, what what starts as issue ends up in the Caribbean. You know, sometimes he's a monkey, sometimes he's a rabbit, sometimes do Br'er Rabbit. 
And from Brer Rabbit, when, when Harry Warner and them boys, when, Harry, when Warner Brothers gets a hold of him, he becomes Bugs Bunny. Now ask yourself, look at Bugs Bunny. Bugs Bunny sits at the crossroads of all dilemmas. That's what that shoe does. In other words, when you come to a crossroad, you got to decide which way to go. As shoe is there in some form, sometimes lay or tight, sometimes a little gourd with a couple of calories for eyes and a mouth, whatever he sits sometimes as a little child who has lost the complete use of an arm or a limb or a leg and can't really move. Sometimes the old man, but he's sitting there at the crossroad to ensure one thing. What? You can't stay here. I'm going to irritate you till you move one way or the other, but you got to pick. And then that's the question of you. Why? Sometimes that's a question of character. It's a question of Ori, who is on your head. It's a question of many things. It's a question of your memory. What have your ancestors and what have your family uh, 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 equipped you with when you come to the crossroads? What is your Oriki? You know, what is your verbal and visual incantation of who you are and who your people are to help you choose where to go in this crossroad? Because you had to cross what that crossroad symbolizes in the dilemma is the dilemma. So if you show up and you got your gun and you out here going to kill you another creature. And then you decide that you're going to point your gun at this rabbit issue. And you say, rabbit season. And then the rabbit going to sit there and keep letting you say that. And then eventually get back, back, back. Rabbit season, dusty, rabbit season, dusty, duck season, rabbit season, dusty, rabbit season, dusty, rabbit season. Boom! Then you blow yourself in the face. Why? See, because you came out here to kill somebody. So I'm going to keep messing with you until your true character comes out and you shot yourself. Elmer Fudd out there trying to harm. The one thing about Bugs Bunny, he don't never die. You tried to blow him up, you got blown up. So if you cool, he cool with you. But if you mean him harm, the only person you're going to harm is yourself. There's the morality tale. So if you're looking for Africana in African populations outside the United States, you got to look at those stories that we teach children. And what are the values we're trying to teach them? When you hear Rockabye Baby, you know, when you hear Humpty Dumpty, they talking about getting the king. It's revolutionary, but it's revolutionary. What you going to replace it with? Oh, we ain't get that far. So it's really not a character thing. Nah. They talking about survival. You in the woods? Y'all ain't got enough to eat? Shit, stay away from old people and stay away from strangers. Because, see, you trying to live and there ain't enough food for everybody. Okay, Hansel and Gretel and Little Red Riding Hood just gave you the plot. The point is this. <laughs> You know, oh, grandma, what big, yeah, the better to eat you with. In other words, y'all stay out the woods and stay away from old people and strangers. Because we ain't got but three biscuits in here and it's eight people trying to knock at the door. Mm -hmm. yeah. In other words, the children's story is going to tell you how the values are being passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation. That's movement and memory. All human societies have it and we do too. So did we tell our children's stories? Absolutely. And then, of course, those stories eventually get supplemented by the stories from the text that we were forced to have to absorb and we absorb them. So I often <laughs> joke with my friends who are ministers and theologians and, and I asked them, I said, you know, how do people of African descent read the Bible? I said, it seems to me that we take the Bible in ways that are eerily reminiscent of the Odu Ifa. In other words, we treat Bible verses like Odu, 256 Odu and the Odu Ifa. Infinite variations on how they can be combined, mixed, matched. You go see the Babalawo, you know, you go and they, you ask them, here's my dilemma. The Babalawo throws the calories, the Fele chain, or however they're going to do divination. 
And then they say, this is the story that I was told to give to you based on what we see here. And then they tell you a combination of the Odu, which takes years of memorizing, years of work, and you never reach the end of that work. That intellectual work is one of the great intellectual traditions of world history, of humanity. You know, my friend Kola Abambola, his father, Wande Abambola, these Babalawo who are also academics and teachers are constantly reminding students. This is a constant process of learning, constant. Pro and we're drawing from the text. When I think about how I read and how I try to read anyway, I'm reading to draw from these texts in the way that I imagine it is done for a, a Babalawo. I'm not a priest. I'm not a Babalawo. But I know that that way of knowing, that way you absorb the texts and you're in constant listening and conversation so you can draw from these materials. And so I look at the, look how we use the Bible. It's the same way. So when they forced us to take that Bible, we took it and we started pulling out verses that made sense. Mm -hmm. So you want to teach humility? All right. Give me that Jonah and give me that Job. I'm going to pull from that Jonah. I'm going to pull from that Job. What's Old Testament, New Testament? Look, it's all words. I'm looking at like the old dude. Well, baby, you just got to trust in God. Because remember when that whale came and swallowed Jonah? Mm -hmm. Then we'll turn it into a song. Then we'll extract the principles. Run on for a long time. God Almighty going to cut you down. <laughs> Damn, God striking people down? No, no, you missed the point. You can try to escape your destiny. You can try to keep that foolishness up. But at some point, you're going to pay. You're going to pay. So those sayings, those, you know, it's a combination of things. That's very African. And I don't mean African like there's one African. There's no one African. What there are is this deep well of African memory that has survived. And the more we recover conscious knowledge of it, the more we say, ah, oh, that's like my grandma used to say. Right, because she never stopped being African. But now as we recover the text, we realize it's all right here. When you read the book of Tahotep, and especially now that we're here, you can start translating and read it for yourself from the Metonature and translate it not only into European American English, but African American English and Ebonics. And you begin to see the values, these Egyptian values. Now they are they are principles. That doesn't mean they were lived by everybody in Egyptian society. Of course they weren't. This is, again, we have to just face reality. There's no need in being delusional about this. We're not talking about a perfect human society. That hasn't existed. Maybe will never exist. Probably won't. There's always the constant, you know, freedom is a constant struggle, as old folks used to say, and it's a rights movement. But our use of these texts convey values. And the values that they convey are very are drawn from experience. And so, yeah, I mean, were there songs? Yes, there are songs. There are songs. There are sayings. There are texts. And all we have to do to recover them is do two things. One, sit and listen and remember from our own experiences. And two, which really should be one, but we're getting there. Begin to access that deep, inexhaustible archive of our collective memory, which goes back from the origins of humanity through now and those two things together we can create politicized bodies that can move forward collectively not just as black people but as people contributing to a common humanity to help us resolve some of these human dilemmas that is not identity politics it's a very different model than using a demographic as the point of departure for political work yeah that's identity politics i think i think that's the distinction so I think, though, we started with Russia. 
And what happened, of course, this week, as I was thinking, you know, we should really try to have a conversation about blacks in Russia because right now we're looking at blackness in a very contemporary sense and trying to figure out which side to pick and all this kind of thing. But on Thursday, the New York Times had an obituary, very important. Professor Hunter, I think this is your, your new ancestor friend. They have her picture in here. <laughs> you, you, you like Ruby Hurley, huh? <laughs> From Mother of the Movement. <laughs> hmm. Here's Ruby Hurley, the sister who just made transition. Authorine Lucy Foster, first black student at the University of Alabama. Uh, the New York Times, man, I don't, is dead. Maybe that's just a space issue. They can't say transition because they ain't no governance. No. That's your question. That's their it's style, dead. though. Yeah, there's their style. That's what I'm saying, the style manual. But I ain't mad. You know, they should be consistent, even as they continue year by year to lower the literacy. The requirements mm -hmm. of, yeah. <laughs> but, you can't get it wrong. I mean, that, that's the paper that put a picture of Venus uh, on a story of Serena Williams, right? That's the oh, same yeah. paper. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, as we always say as Black folk, we all look alike. And the other thing is mighty white of you. <laughs> mighty white of you. So, uh, <laughs> gotta love this sister right here, though. Oh, my God. So, today, for the rest of the time we have, just like we did a few weeks ago with um, the great Alice Wyndham out of St. Louis. And before, this, before we go there, I just want to just say Johnny Brown, who played Bookman, uh, mm -hmm. Bookman, Good Times, he just made transition. I saw. Yeah, on the second. So I just wanted to then. No, that's important because even as young people, when they would have a talent show, he would get up there and sing. Yeah, and people that do impressions, people think, Oh, wow, no, that was his primary work. He was just acting in good, <laughs> he's a singer, and did I mean, he he was a multi talented entertainer, yeah, yeah, rest well, yes, indeed, yes, indeed. It's funny you say that. I just say this right quick. We talk about black people having a common identity, the technology has shifted, of course. And let me just pause here as well and say how grateful. I know we all are, not only for this space, but for our consistency in offering something that is beginning to lower the noise. Because there are countless options out there in cyberspace now. And the consistency of our numbers in all across everything in narrative and Nubia that is, continues to build as a place where we have that fresh water generation conversation where we're building you know uh, the public face in front port porch with the youtube and some of the stuff is shared with folk uh you know and i wonder now like on monday nights we're consistently over a thousand so are we anywhere near that this morning because i mean we're we're live and if those of you who are watching this later you know we we, we start in nubia because that's what we're building and we invite everyone you know and, and those numbers continue to build I don't think we would be a Saturday morning on the East Coast, which means it's four day in the morning. Other places, we wouldn't be anywhere near those, that today. And, nah, and, and nah, it's, it's almost a thousand. And even mm -hmm. I'm here from London, I see Oz, and there's a few other oh, people. Uh, Renee's here from Switzerland. I what? see, yeah, I see a few people uh, Oz in other sleep. countries. Oz I, Oz don't sleep. I don't know neither when I sleep. Neither do you. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, that's my brother. Yeah, I'm following. Hey, Oz, for real though, bro. I just got a package. Okay, y'all, I got to show y'all something. I, <laughs> I got to show y'all something. I just What's, got in a package package? What's in your pocket? 
Oh, yeah, that's true. Where do I have my pocket? Get your hands out my pocket. Ain't no telling what I got. I was up there. I just got this. Man, I've been waiting on this. I finally got my hands on it. I talked to the brother who runs the New Beacon bookstore, uh, Brother LaRose, who, of course, the legendary John LaRose, the founder of uh, of uh, Beacon bookstore. They had from 1982 to 1995, and Oz, you remember this, when we first talked, first time we talked, we uh, I mentioned the uh, the the International uh, Book Fair, the International Book Fair of Radical and Black Third World Books that started in London in 1982, and it went through 1995. The bookstore, New Beacon, is still there. These are the revolutionaries from all over the world who would meet in London, Black-owned, Black-operated, non-Black people, other people, Indians, a lot of people, who immigrants in, in, in England would come, and they and, and it was from all over the world. Anyway, I finally talked to them and finally got it together because, you know, England trying to leave the EU. Brexit messed up everything. So, you know, I'd be looking for books all over the world. So I'm hunting this book, tracking this book. I finally got my hand. It's called A Meeting of the Continents, History, Memories, Organizations, and Programs, 1982 to 1995. This is the book with all of the conference programs of those conferences. Fifth book fair. I mean, y'all see there, all the different people, artists, and Dan, I mean, Angela Davis, my man, Abdullah Kalamai, all of them, James Baldwin, everybody from around the world at this international book fair. There's the title. International Book Fair, Radical and Third World Books Revisited. Mm -hmm. Histories, Memories, Organizations, and Programs. John LaRose, let me just show y'all John LaRose, the founder here, because I really, man, I was so happy. I finally, we was on the phone a couple of weeks ago. I was on the phone with them. And finally, here we go, John LaRose. John LaRose and Cassie. Mm -hmm. John LaRose. Very important. And it's very important. In fact, I didn't tell him this, but I got a couple of copies of his poetry, John LaRose's poetry books I collected over the years, found them. The thing about, watch this, watch this. I'm just going to show you one more. I love this statement. This statement is from, uh, they tried, they attacked the bookstore. They threw paint and all this kind of thing. So 1978, they had a group called Bookstore Joint Action seven black community bookstores in the autumn of 1977 because black and, and and oz told us about this he talks about some of the this is before they started the book fair because they had black bookstores you know the notting hill right i mean these 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 fascists these anti-human people who attack people they were attacking black people and they would you know they terrorized the bookstore there you see they you know the toussaint l'ouverture this is the uh bogo l'ouverture bookshop in fact when we talk about Walter rodney I'm going to uh, be referring to one of his books, How Europe Undeveloped Africa. I actually have a copy from the Bogle Loverture Bookshop because when uh, he published it at first, Walter Rodney, his most famous book, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, he published it out of London at that bookstore I just showed y'all. Then there was an American edition published by Howard University Press. Not Columbia University Press with some Nick Rose and Howard to give it some legitimacy. No, Howard University Press. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, but after they did this, the bookstore owners got together in the bookshops. And this is where I'll just end with this in this book. We won't be terrorized out of existence. You gotta love that. Anyway, a meeting of the continents. This is the history of the book fair. So 
I know Oz is like, I gotta get that new beacon, brother. Hold he on, said, man. Ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I said, Ah, yeah. See, I see, uh, see, Oz, this, this is one where like you be showing me them books, then I'd be going bankrupt trying to find them. Oh, oh when I can't, when they ain't in the US, but this is one where you could just get in the street and go get this today. So when you talk to LaRose, man, tell him uh, we was talking about it and thank him for me again, because you know, me and him, I finally got caught up with him on the phone with the hours difference. We, we got the thing, got the thing handled. Cause I've been looking for that for a long time. Anyway. So uh, yeah. So, but we're all over to the point you were making uh, Karen and with a thousand Wama, people Wama, Washington, Oakland, of course, boogie down Bronx and Brooklyn and, uh, Arizona's in the house and mm. Ithaca, you know, we got folks Ithaca. from all Ithaca, yes, Ithaca, Ithaca New, New York, York. Cornell, yes, 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 North well, Carolina, I mean, yeah. So, 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 we today, like we did a couple weeks ago with uh, with with uh, Mama Alice, who's now ancestor, Arthurine Lucy is not going to be narrated. Now, the reason she has this long obituary in the New York Times is because. Well, let's just read very quickly. Authorine Lucy had no particular desire to be a civil rights pioneer. See, this is what the social structure does. They're going to start narrating the life. Well, this is what they do in obituaries. Let me not do this. Let me just read them. Growing up as the youngest of 10 children in an Alabama farm family, she simply wanted to get the best education her state could offer. She obtained a bachelor's degree in English from the historically black Miles College in Fairfield, Alabama in 1952. But then, though she was a reserved, even shy person, she took a daring step. She applied for entrance to her state's flagship educational institution, the University of Alabama. And she was accepted, at least until university officials discovered that she was black and promptly told her that a mistake had been made and she would not be welcome. So began a legal fight that culminated in 1956, nearly two years after the Supreme Court found segregation in public schools and colleges unconstitutional in, Lambert, in the landmark Brown versus Board of Education decision when Miss Lucy became the first black student at Alabama. Her request to obtain a second undergraduate degree in library science lasted only three days of classes at Tuscaloosa. When mobs threatened her life and pelted her with rocks, eggs, and rotten produce, the university suspended her ostensibly for her own safety. Several weeks later, it expelled her. Her case was the first to test the Supreme Court's decree, giving federal district court judges the authority to implement the Brown decision, and she was beaten back. When she died on Wednesday this week at 92, she was remembered for her courage and dignity in waging a fight that led directly to sustained integration in Alabama seven years later in the face of Governor George C. Wallace's notorious stand in the schoolhouse door defiance. Remember that? Where he stood in the schoolhouse door to stop these black people from enrolling? Well, that wasn't. That was uh, Vivian uh, Malone and Hood, James Hood. These are the two black students who Wallace was blocking in 1960. But that was years after, six years after Vivian uh, I'm sorry, Arthurine Lucy uh, had attended classes for a day and then these white boys start turning up. Now, I won't read the rest of this now. And I'm going to ask our new ancestor. Well, I'm not going to burden her. I asked my mom because and my mom from Alabama, too. And we passed the 30 day ascension. So normally in a, in a period between 30 and 60 days, you know, African people, many different groups of African people will mark, will pause to mark 
the transition of an ancestor by saying we have prayed and thought and wished and hoped them into a strong ancestral position. They're still a young ancestor, but they over there now with the rest of the ancestors. So I'm not going to ask uh, Arthur and Lucy who just started her journey. She's a young, young ancestor. I'm asking my mama who's just a little older than her say, mom, keep my tongue in my mouth from cussing these garbage obituary writing white boys. Thank you. I'm going to calm me down. I'm looking at that picture y'all sent me. <laughs> right there. Just call me. That's right. Because this obituary don't tell you. This This is a... No. Thank you. Thank you. This obituary is a social structure obituary. That's what it is. That's why we have to have an Africana Studies framework. Africana Studies is not random ass black topics and you lump them all up under black studies because the initials for that would be BS. Africana studies is a deliberate exercise in how we study not only Africana, but human phenomena, human experiences. We have to have a methodology. There's a reason why we had to have a methodology. And I'm not saying that this six structured methodology with the seventh question, how do we free us, is the methodology. I am saying it's based on years of listening and conversation and debate, discussion, and I'm comfortable with it. But I also know that nothing, everything is always in process. But I know that it's very effective, at least in my thinking, to to my thinking, to apply uh, uh, any methodology that allows us for a moment to turn down the noise of a social structure in which we've been curated as things, as non-human. In fact, as Sylvia Winter would say, it's another book I'm waiting on to come, a collection of her writings is just being published out of People Tree Press in Porto Pete, Guadeloupe. But as Sylvia Winter, the Cuban Jamaican philosopher says, you know, the concept of the human, the Western concept of the human is the problem. Maybe we should deconstruct that. But you know what? While while we're thinking about that, let y'all do that. We're going to consign that to a social structure question, which allows us to still engage it, but doesn't allow it to spill over into who we are to each other. And what this does not tell you, because it's a social structure obituary, is who Arthurine Lucy Foster is to us. So why don't we do that with the help of... I'm going to thank that ancestor who made transition, Arthurine Lucy Foster, her husband's name was Foster, who um, clearly on her way over there wanted us to share this right now because I have been looking for it for a couple of days. And then this morning, it peeked out from between some other books where I had been looking at the beginning and then went all over and said, man, I didn't put that in storage because I keep this one close. There's certain things I kind of keep close. And this is one of the things, but it's so small. It's like, I left it here and I knew where it was. I, was like, I went all over the house and I can't find it. You're talking about thousands of books. So I'm like, mm -hmm. so finally this morning I go, so well, that's all right. Cause I had now framed everything else. And that also allowed me to find some other things. I see what you did there on the way out. I'm not mad at you. You powerful young ancestor. Uh, uh, Mama Arthurine. So, um, it peeked out at me from, I said, now I started laughing. So I had to stop immediately and give thanks. You see how little this is? This little thin thing. West Boycott in Alabama. That's Arthurine Lucy, y'all. This is Arthurine Lucy. She said, I want only a chance to learn. That's Arthurine Lucy right here. This is published out of Chicago. Volume one, number six. You see the date there. It's April 1956. Are our efforts in vain? Here is Arthurine Lucy. While this mess is going on, 
Miss Lucy and Alabama University by Philip Johnson. On February 6, 1956, three days after being admitted to the University of Alabama by a court order, she was suspended by the school's trustees, quote, for your safety, end quote, they claimed. Now, over now, over three weeks later, Arthurine Lucy, beautiful brown-skinned co-ed, listened intently to the words of federal judge Hobart Grooms in Birmingham, Alabama courtroom, filled with spectators. At her side was, quote, Mr. Civil Rights, end quote, Thurgood Marshall, general counsel for the NAACP. Quote, there are some people, said the judge, who feel this court should carve out a province in Alabama, isolate it, and man the balance to defy the Supreme Court. That is not the prerogative of this court, end quote. He then ordered the readmission of Miss Lucy before 9 a.m. on March. You can't make this up. Can you read that, Professor Hunter? What's your opinion? It means only one thing. Where? Before right above. Before 9 a.m. when? March. Are oh, you said it? T today is March 5th. Stop playing. You stop playing. Arthur and Lucy need to stop playing. On the way to the ancestral realm. I looked for this book. I can't tell you how many hours I spent looking for this little thin volume. And I looked at just peeking out enough, because you know with me, I don't need a lot. When I seen the green on that B, I knew what this was. I couldn't do nothing but laugh. <laughs> Yo. See, or not, just like y'all try to kill Buzz Bunny, keep living, because that's really SU. Y'all gonna keep messing with black folk till you mess up and blow your own brains out. We'll get to that in a minute. Supreme Court, I see you. Justice Beer, mad, hit dog. The hit dog hollered in a uh, in a uh, concurrence in the Alabama case that's coming up about that black belt of Alabama that Arthur and Lucy came from. They just uh, issued it this week. Justice Beard, just as I love beer, just as I love beer and working out, just as I love beer and working out and bringing young girls in high school to the parties and acting like I ain't see them and, and Yale undergrad. Yeah, we see you, Justice. You got hit by that hot water, Elena Kagan throw. I understand, hit dog, but we're going to come to you in a minute, hit dog. Arthur and Lucy was readmitted 9 a.m. is when we started on the East Coast time. They Central Standard Time. So I went at 8 a.m. here. On March the 5th. Arthur and Lucy said, it means only one thing, she said. I'll be back in school. Says, uh, Johnson goes on and says, seemed the fight was over after four long years. She had originally applied for admission to Alabama University to study library science. Pause there. Arthur and Lucy lived her whole life, lived her whole adult life as a teacher. She was a teacher. She was just on the campus of the University of Alabama the 25th, I think, of February to dedicate the very building she took classes in at one day. They renamed it for her. Oh, we won't get there too, social structure. We see y'all. And every last one of you Negroes that suits up and plays football for the University of Alabama, the University of Georgia, the University of Mississippi, the University of South Carolina, suits up and plays for Clemson, for Texas A&M, those of you who suit up and play for Texas Hook'em Horns, University of Texas, those of you who suit up and play for Auburn University, those of you who find a way to manage to bounce a ball up and down the hardwood courts of Duke University and the University of North Carolina and the University of Kentucky. I want y'all listen. And if y'all ain't listening today, which you probably aren't, you go, you, you, if you they mom and them, or auntie, or dad, or pops, or a big brother, or a coach, won't y'all play this for them that is if you can ignore the bright lights of these hustlers going out talking about what they're going to do for your son or daughter 
maybe get them to the league. Help them get a degree? Not sure. I'm sure that's what you say when you sit in the living rooms and try to get them to come and make that money for them uh, historically plantation colleges and universities. But we talking about Arthurine Lucy this morning and why if I had a son or daughter, I would never want them to go to the University of Alabama and make them millionaires and billionaires. I understand. For everybody who went there, I get it. It's your tax dollars at work. Our tax dollars at work. I'm not mad at you, but I'm just saying, let's have just a little, just a, just a, just a, just a little self respect. Okay, my mom telling me to calm down. All right, here we go. The Supreme Court eventually agreed. As a result, on February 3rd, 1956, Miss Lucy, at 26 years old, uh, years of age, became the first Negro to attend classes at the 125-year-old institution at Tuscaloosa. Here go students at the University of Alabama, the welcoming committee, demonstrating against the enrollment of Arthurine. Lucy wiped tear gas from their eyes before start. He says, notice the stars and bars, the flag of the Confederacy, a symbol of slavery, debauchery, and brutality being waved by the rioters. Lisa was telling us they was waving these Confederate flags in Canada with that truck convoy up there. No masks, right? They go Ruby Hurley again. They love this picture, Ruby, Ruby Hurley. There's Arthur Shores, the first black man to argue cases by himself for his own clients in the uh, state of Alabama, who was Arthurine Lucy's lawyer, who actually sued the University of Alabama because of what they did saying they engaged in conspiracy, but then that suit was withdrawn by Mr. Civil Rights, Thurgood Marshall, because often the, the National NBCP didn't agree with the local. These cats ready to bang. You see what I'm saying? They go Ruby Hurley, though. It's the same picture, right? It's the bigger picture in the Times, but what the hell? Let's go to, and I don't have a photo credit, and the photo credit here is Gene Herrick from the Associated Press. I don't know who that is. But I know that, uh, here we go. Let me keep going here. Um, it was reported that several students moved away as she took a seat in the front row of the class. A freshman clenched his fist and left the room, mumbling, quote, for two cents, I dropped this course, end quote. However, another student was heard to say, quote, I wonder why they haven't let them come here before. End quote. Cliff Mackey, Baltimore Afro-Americans chief editor. No, I'm sorry. Cliff Mackey, New York Times chief editor. No, I had it right the first time. Baltimore Afro-Americans chief editor was on the spot opening day. Wait, does the Afro still publish? Yeah, it does. There's a lot of black newspapers. The NMPA, the National Newspaper, Negro News, the National Newspaper Association, Publishers Association. You know, go look at the newspapers that publish. Our brother, who was up there in Minneapolis, came to Nubia the other night. Again, we had that chat. There's a lot of black newspapers, not just in the U.S., but in the Caribbean, the Gleaner. I try to read, you know, uh, before internet was huge, huge, I would go to New York and I always buy the papers because, you know, in the Caribbean, they had a Caribbean newspapers for sale in Brooklyn and Harlem. Go on 125th Street, get them all, the Gleaner, you know, <laughs> Weekly Standard, Autumn Papers, the Trini Papers, the Carib News. But they are our websites now. The, uh, the continent of Africa, of course, papers all over Africa. Uh, Africa as a country is a great website. Um, any number of places, Chimaringa. I mean, but now there's so many, so many sources, so many resources. Same thing for Latin America, same thing for Europe, African people. But in the U.S., these black newspapers, many of them still around. 
So they, yeah, they printed authoree Lucy's uh, obituary in the New York Times. That's great. Social structure paper. I mean, I'm a subscriber, right? That in the Financial Times. I'll read that every day. At the same time, these cats was on the ground. That's what your brother says. Cliff Mackey and Afro still publishes. He wrote, quote, one teacher, she said, detaining her after other members of the class had gone, whispered, I admire your courage and I'm sure you will win. A male student passed her a folded note which read, quote, there's more of us rooting for you than you think. We don't like the, the deal these old mossbacks on the board gave you, end quote. However, when she returned to classes on February 6th, a waiting mob of white students and townspeople began to chant, hey, hey, ho, ho, off the ring, must go. Earlier, they had marched on the home of the school's president, Oliver Cromwell Carmichael, shouting, to hell with Arthur Reen, keep Bama white, end quote. A cross was burned. They sang Dixie and waved Confederate flags. Oh, I wish I were in the land of cotton, old times there are not forgotten. Look away, look away, look away, Dixie land. When I was an undergrad, they still waved the Confederate flag at old Miss Games. In fact, their mascot was Johnny Reb. They, they changed it eventually in the last couple of, about 20 years or so. They changed it because them black students at, at Ole Miss and the white students, decent white students and others was like, nah. And guess what? I'm not saying we shouldn't go to those schools. Our tax dollars at work, but damn it. Flagship, I understand why you say flagship. It is the flagship in Alabama. For them, but Arthur and Lucy did not attend the University of Alabama first. We come into that. Who are we to each other? Oh, we coming to that. And I, I don't blame the New York Times. How can I blame the New York Times? It is the paper of record for white supremacy. I'm not a white supremacist. I work at the New York Times. No, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about a social structure, a hierarchy where people would say, yes, while it's very nice to write for the New York Amsterdam News, you know, I, I, if I could get a job at the New York Times, and I understand that. There are a lot of things that come with that. Prestige, for example. Prestige, can't, prestige you can actually eat prestige if you translate it into something that comes with dollars and cents. I get all that. But damn, what are you teaching your children? Do you understand? What are you teaching your children when you constantly teach them to aspire to something they didn't create, they didn't build, they didn't sustain, that is still around? And guess what? It ain't either or, except when it is. I ain't going to get into that today. But you could figure out a way to do both. And it ain't by giving out internships to the damn New York town. I ain't mad at all, because I understand. If I didn't understand, I'd probably be mad. I'd probably be frustrated. I'd be trying to try to get more internships. No. We need to build. Anyway, let's continue. It says, downtown, three cars driven by Negroes have been attacked. Three non-students have been arrested for striking Reverend Robert E. Gribben, Jr., the university's chaplain who had attempted to quiet the demonstrators. The windows of the car in which Miss Lucy rode were smashed by rocks. By the way, they were also chanting, murder her, kill her, kill her. She tried to go to school. The state police escorted her back to Birmingham. A white citizens council meeting was hastily organized by people referred to by a 19 year old sophomore, Leonard R. Wilson as quote, high type. White citizens council, now the white elites getting involved. They got demographic too. He was elected temporary chairman at the first meeting held at the county courthouse. <laughs> they had the White Citizens Council meeting at the at the county courthouse, <laughs> like today. I mean, they changed the name. They don't call it the White Citizens Council. Joiners paid $3.50 and signed a pledge opposing racial integration and communism. Ooh. Ending with the commonplace, quote, 
I do not wish my child to marry a Negro, end quote. All right, some of you running back some wide receivers down there for the Crimson Tide. I think that's probably something you maybe know something about. Anyway, said Arthur and Lucy, quote, I don't think I'm asking for anything I am not entitled to. I only, I want only to have a chance to learn, end quote. These were, there were those who agreed with her. Reportedly, 500 of the 7,520 students at the university affixed their signatures to a petition to this effect. Jane Burgess, senior from Montgomery, whose grandfather was one of the organizers of the original Ku Klux Klan, according to the New York Times, was among the circulators of the petitions. Okay. The Times got the social structure covered. Brought from the Afro and the black press got the governance structure question. Tuscaloosa News, a white Alabama paper, editorialized, the mob action was ugly, unintelligent. A student kept shouting, kill her, kill her. Let us remember that the object of the hunt was an American citizen. This is Tuscaloosa News. So they, there's white people on all sides of this. Again, we got to think differently. Everybody white ain't against and everybody black ain't for. But in this case, you would assume all the black people are for not getting killed. And I will go on. Uh, I'll just I'll close with this on this particular moment. And I'll, I'll also show you another book that people can put their hands on. This is an excellent book here. Um, Fry Galliard did. Let me just come out. This was published in 2010. University of Alabama Press. I got some. I got. I got something about these university presses, particularly the ones in the South. Here's the thing: Black people under assault for centuries, busting our ass, building our institutions in spite of this, trying to come together. Then these white institutions, through force and goodwill, but mostly force, open up to part of the black elite and others, and then the black people start writing and publishing with the white presses as the gold standard. Alabama Civil Rights Trail, an illustrated guide to the cradle of freedom. This is a good book, even though it's the University of Alabama Press. This is portrait of Arthurine Lucy at the Ferguson Student Center at U of A. There she is. There's Arthurine Lucy in later years. And it, and it chronicles, quote unquote, the ordeal of Arthurine Lucy. And it talks about how she got on there. Here she is in 56, fly. You know, black people is like, hey, I know one thing, y'all might call me the N-word, but I'm going to look better than you, your mama, your auntie, everybody in your whole damn family, your uncle, all of them. <laughs> That's just what's going to happen. Smith Hall, where she was attacked. The, the president's mansion. Oh, I wish I were in the land of cotton. Neo-Greek revival. This is a riff on the Greeks, which is a riff on the Egyptians. Neo-Greek revival. That's what they call it in the South. Because see, the South, old backwater, old bottom of the barrel, fake non-Europe backwater, created an identity for itself that was based on pure fabrication that is now ensconced in the uh, memory of people in the United States as some original Southern culture. But it's Neo-Greek. They making up a Greece that was borrowed from the Africans, but they don't even know it. Plus, the, in the ultimate indignity, Black people had to build the damn buildings. Right. I mean, I'm from a city, Nashville, where they put a whole ass uh, exact size replica of the Greek Parthenon in a park called Centennial Park to celebrate the centennial in Nashville. And it's an it's a, a whole <laughs> stone. 
They got a city in southwest part of the state I was from, Tennessee, sits at the Mississippi River. There's named for a uh, for a comedic city, except they think it's not Memphis, Herak Petah, the place of Petah, uh, Minnefer in Nile Valley, but they don't know that. They call it Memphis, right? They even built a glass pyramid down here years ago. I mean, boy, these people, boy, because they ain't got no culture. You understand? This is white people in the South creating a culture for themselves. It's very important. And then you merge up the lost cause, you got it going. Anyway, this is, man, this book. Now, mind you now, this is uh, this was published in April 1956. So this is while it's going on. So what else is going on? Professor Hunter, what else is going on around uh, early part of 1956 in Alabama that made headlines? Don't think too hard. When we think Alabama civil rights, what do we think of? Don't think too hard. Don't think too hard. Bus boycott. Right. It's going on. They're only four months in. Leaders of the Montgomery bus boycott, Reverend Martin Luther King and Reverend Ralph David Abernathy. Guess what? There's a tie between Ralph Abernathy and our sister, Arthurine Lucy. And we're going to talk about it in just a second. There go the young bull right there, Fred Gray, still alive, still practicing law today. Fred D. Gray, 25-year-old part-time Church of Christ minister and lawyer, attorney for the Montgomery bus worker. Uh-oh, there go Rosa. Seamstress, whose refusal, look at her, dignified. I hate, I don't want to say that word. She not dignified, she black woman. Uh-oh, Reverdy Ransom in this picture. No, is he? Here the 13 members of the AME Council of Bishops. They're on the steps after appealing to President Eisenhower to help the Montgomery bus boycotters. Ike is apparently deaf. Wow. <laughs> this is 1956. While Arthurine Lucy is fighting her fight. Now, let's go to the let's go to that. There's more information in that tiny little pamphlet than we got in all of these books. Go ahead, Doctor. No question. And I ain't even, I didn't even well, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go through it right because this whole pamphlet is about 20. It's 34 pages. And I wish. It, oh man, they got oh wait, they go Mega Evers. Right? This is all in real time. But here they got letters to the editor at the beginning and the end. Let me read just right quick. This is from Victor Penzella from the Bronx, New York. Dear editor, please write more articles by W.E.B. Du Bois and Africa in general. It seems that we African Americans as a group know less about Africa and its people than anyone else. Therefore, when someone tells decides to tell us some fantastic tale about Africa, we are inclined to accept it due to the simple fact that we are uninformed, hence unable to distinguish between truth and pure fantasy. When a movie comes to the screen, say like Simba, any self-respecting group would not have allowed such a picture to be shown in this country. If we were informed and self-respecting people, we would have picked, picketed the movie house that dare show uh, such a low degrading, de degenerating, and pro-Naziist picture as Simba, produced by the inevitable British. Go ahead, Oz. I do not imply that we are not self-respecting. It is simply that we are not informed and are unable to determine what is truth and what is propaganda. He goes on. These are letters from 1956. Here we are in 2022. Now you tell me, have we regressed or have we progressed? I'm not sure. I've seen Negroes in prison uniforms dancing at the Super Bowl. All right, let's keep going. Mm. That's the sound of the men working on the chain gang. Where Alabama in them same prison uniforms. 
Oh, but keep your head ringing. <laughs> keep your head nodding. Whatever, uh, whatever Andre and I'll be writing about. All right, let's talk about Arthurine Lucy just for a second. Arthurine Juanita Lucy. Love this sister. Love her. She tried to get in the University of Alabama. She got put out after several days. They said they're going to suspend her for her own good. Then they expelled her because they said she caused a riot. The young boy lawyer wanted to sue the university. Thurio was like, nah, let's get our mouths out, heads out of the lion's den. So, of course, Arthurine Lucy never, you know, got a degree and lived her life in ignominy. No, let's just hold up. Because you know what I had to do then. What did I do? I started, oh, yeah. You know what I did. I got to go look for the stuff. This is the history of the Alabama State Teachers Association. Right, one of those many books we talked about before. The Black Teachers Associations wrote their histories, and in this book, as I was rereading, because every time you read a book, the more you know. Like I sit here sometimes, I'm reading, I'm thinking, I said, man, if I had known this 30 years ago, I'd have asked so and so. Can't ask them now, except as an ancestor. Because the more you know, the more you go back to the things you studied before or thought about before, you can ask them different questions. It's a different kind of thing, right? And I wish I had known what I know now. And the more you know, the more you know that you will never know and don't know, which is why we have to do this work together. But I'm going back now looking for Arthurine Lucy. Because Arthurine Lucy, <laughs> Arthurine Lucy, who was born in Alabama, of course, Arthurine Lucy was graduated from a place called Linden Academy. Linden Academy, which is in Monongo County, Alabama. Linden Academy ain't there no more. You know what Linden Academy is? Linden Academy is a school that those black farmers in Alabama built out of nothing. Built because this is how they used to do it in the South. They would let you get maybe six years of education. They might even let you get seven, you know, six, six usually was it. And then they would put a gap. Why? No high schools. Why would they not let you have high schools in Alabama, do you think, Professor Hunter? Or the South, period. So that you can't get to college. Exactly. These fiends. It's a famous Supreme Court case, Cumming County, Georgia. Talks about that. They closed the high school, opened four elementary schools. They said because there's more elementary school students. They understand that, right. But no, you did that so they couldn't get to college. They did it in North Carolina. They did it in Georgia. They did it in Alabama. But you know what black people said? Okay, we see you crackers. Yeah, no problem. Where y'all going? Don't worry about where we going. What you doing? Don't worry about what we doing. We starting private high schools. <laughs> oh, let's go to this encyclopedic piece. I didn't show y'all this. Lord have mercy. Come on, son. Where is it? Come on, son. These Arthurine Lucy's parents, Milton Lucy and his wife, Minnie. Milton and Minnie Lucy. He got on glasses because he can't read. Wait, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Whole sharecropping Negro came to the flagship university. Who were her parents? Oh, I'm sorry. You're not asking who she is to us. You saying who she is. Do you know how magic Negroes drop out the sky to save America? 
Ooh, watch out. Oh, here come Martin Luther King. Oh, watch out. Oh, here come Rose Parks. Oh, watch out. Here come Arthur and Lucy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all saving us. What about their parents and their families? Oh, we don't need all them niggas. We just need them one heroic super Negroes to save the soul of America. And that makes them truly American. Don't you want to know about their families? Only we can narrate them, you know, as poor sharecroppers. And, you know, you know. Who are they to us? I don't know about that. That's y'all. Writing for the Baltimore Afro and shit, starting narrative and newbians. <laughs> you won't care about that. Well, guess what? That contempt, my friends. I hear you, mom. Let me get this one off. That contempt is mutual. Anyway, let's continue. These are the parents, right? But watch this. Milton and Milton Lucy and his wife Minnie, both sixty-nine, look grim as they ponder the violence and bitter controversy stemming from the enrollment of their daughter Arthurine Lucy at the University of Alabama. What she's doing now. She didn't learn at home, end quote. Milton Lucy commented, this is her father, quote, all of our sons and daughters were taught to leave white folks alone. But when they had to associate with them to give them the respect they deserve, end quote. The parents live on their own 110 acre farm in Marengo County near Selma, Alabama. Wait, that's gotta be a typo. Help me, I know it's blurry, but can you read above my finger? Is that, did I have that right? That number? A hundred and ten acre. Yes. Farm. Okay. I just wanted to be clear. So you can't call them sharecroppers, huh? Mm. I wish I had a hundred and ten. I wish I had one acre. Come on. Hundred and ten acre farm. Now. This and they, is the wait, farm. and they named their daughter Arthur Reen. Arthur Reen. Now, I didn't do the deep, deep dig because there's no book yet on Arthur and Lucy, although I'm sure there are probably at least a half dozen graduate students, probably most of them white, figuring out how they're going to write this book and get it published at the University of Alabama Press on this black hero coming out of black institutions and black family because that's how they do these days. And then they'll congratulate themselves some more. Again, as I told you, she was there a few days before she made transition. We're going to get to that in a second. I love this, man. This is something. Oh, my goodness. But my God. This is a black publication writing about these black people. And what you see is a divergence a little bit. Now I won't say divergence of opinion. They, they grew up in the shadow of the whip. You understand? They are 69 years old. They're both 69 years old. This is 1956. You do the math. That means they were born probably around what? 1886, 1885, 1886, which means they weren't born in enslavement, but their parents were. So, their attitude to a white people, I'm going to say what I need to do, get you out of my business as quickly as possible. You know, when I, when, I, when I was a young adult, as a teenager, and I bought my first pair of brogans to go with my suit, what we used to call it in the South and probably other places too, insurance man shoes. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> them insurance, I call them insurance man shoes because the insurance man that came up on the porch would have them shoes on. And the insurance man was mostly white. And when the white insurance man come, you don't come in my house. I give you the money through the screen door, come out on the porch. But you ain't coming in my house. Why? This the governance. This me. You understand? So these black people, when you got to deal with white people, you give them the respect they deserve. So that means they were they thought whites were superior. No, what that meant is get out of my face as quickly as possible. You give them the respect they deserve. They don't mean deserve like earned by natural right. The concept of human that Sylvia Winters talking about. What they mean is, I can't blow your brains out and I can't fight you right now, but I'm going to get these 110 acres and go out here as soon as your ass leaves and keep eating this uh, barbecue sandwich from this pig that I raised and get me another peach off the tree that I own. And, then, you know, we good. So Arthurine did not learn 
effing with the University of Alabama here. Although she has a right to. And we're concerned because they're trying to kill her. Now, if you kill her, we're going to kill y'all. But please understand, we ain't coming there messing with y'all for because we know where we live. I mean, it's, it's complicated. It's it's layered. But I, I just wanted to mention that because Arthurine Lucy went to a school that these black people here raised money for and created called Linden Academy. Linden Academy. You know who went there before Arthurine Lucy? What was that brother who was standing next to Mike, uh, Martin Luther King? In Montgomery, his boy, Ralph Abernathy. Ralph Abernathy graduated from Linden. That's how he got to school. Now, you know what that did? That sent me to the shelf because I got a signed copy of this. This Ralph Abernathy's autobiography. And he writes about not only going to Linden Academy, the guy who was the, hold on, let me see, can I find it in 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, yes. On page 7. <laughs> Says, uh, on at least one occasion, my father's generosity got him in trouble with my mother. Ralph Abernathy's father was the head deacon at their church, Hopewell Baptist Church. On a Sunday morning, our small church was visited by, quote, Professor, in quote, G.P. George P. Moore Austin, principal of Linden Academy, who was there to, quote, hit up the congregation for additional funds, end quote, since the school's teachers were in need of a raise. So G.P. Austin was the principal of the academy that Ralph Abernathy went to and later Arthurine Lucy went to. It's the high school that black people created in Alabama, one of many schools around the South, private schools black people created so their children could get that gap from elementary school to get to that junior high and high school level so they could go off to the schools, which were almost exclusively the HBCUs. That lawyer that was there with her and Ruby Hurley, he went to Talladega. Still there. Y'all know I'm a, uh, they had the Amistad murals. I got that book around here somewhere. Anyway, so what we're looking at is black self-determination. Of course, they ain't going to talk about this in the New York Times because what she's important is because she offered herself up to take another ass whooping in the tradition of Jesus Christ to sacrifice herself on the altar of American democracy. Kill her, kill her. This kind of thing, right? Mm. Again, reinforcing the question that we never ask. Little Rock Nine sacrificed themselves. Okay, where'd they go to school before that? You ever heard of Horace Mann High School? Before that, Paul Lawrence Dunbar? High school of Little Rock, oh, that ain't important to us. All we want to see is them marched up down getting spit on. And then we'll fast forward to old people when we come back five seconds before they take their last breath, put their name on a building, give them a plaque, take a picture of ourselves doing it and congratulating ourselves on how far we've come. Right. Well, we're going to do a little bit more than that. Okay. So Linden Academy, from there, she has graduated. One of 10 children. She has graduated. And so then she goes off and tries to get in the University of Alabama. They tell her, no, wait, shit, wait, no. Where does she go from there? Uh, where could she go? Let's ask ourselves that, Prof. She's graduated from the black high school, one of the black high schools. And oh, by the way, let me pause here and say that that high school isn't there anymore. Uh, Linden Academy isn't there anymore. On that property, that property is now named for the principal. It is now a junior high school. 
Now what we would call a middle school, right? That middle school is GP Austin Junior High School in Alabama. The high school is now named Linden High School on the on the uh on the list of Alabama schools in terms of the standardized tests and performing them, them bogus ass tests. They are among the lowest performing high schools and junior high schools in Alabama. So we clearly know it ain't the students that's wrecking education in this country. It's the system. Because that's the same, literally, that that Austin occupies. And in an article that was in Alabama uh, newspapers, um, this Alabama, th- th- this was in the Alabama newspapers in uh, this, this year, January 2022. There's a house near the high school, down the street from the high school that has been added to the Alabama Register of Landmarks and Heritage. It's called the Frank Langster House. The Frank Langster House was a boarding house for the teachers at Linden Academy. Those black people in that county, those farmers, not only bought the land and put up Linden Academy, they then had a house and it was privately funded where the teachers who came to teach at the academy could live. What is the value of education in black communities? My God, the guy who owns it, Frank Langster, is the great grandson of Ed Shields. You know, I love black people in the South. They put, he put an extra D on his name. It wasn't E.D. Shields, it's E.D.D. <laughs> Ed Shields. Ed Shields came out of enslavement. And just like George Floyd graduated from Jack Yates High School in Houston, where Jack Yates was a formerly enslaved African who would come from North Carolina and a bunch of other Africans, they put down together the money and bought what became a man station park in Houston. Ed Shields bought 70 acres of land after he came out of enslavement, paid $500. And his great-grandson said, how a slave-born person got his hands on $500 to buy 70 acres of land, we don't know. (laughs) But the house is still there. What, what, What Ed Shields, the formerly enslaved African, did was he gave each of his children an acre of land and donated 12 land, 12 acres for the school. And Linden Academy, that's where George P. Austin Jr. High School now stands, named for the brother who was the principal who came asking for money. And Ralph Abernathy tells a story in his autobiography of how he got up that day, the principal, they call him Professor George Austin, got up and said, I want to thank Deacon Abernathy. We were here to raise money, and I know you all will help us raise money. And Deacon Abnathy has started us off by giving us a thousand dollars. Ralph Abnathy said his mama looked at his daddy like, "Dude, we farmers, we ain't got a thousand dollars. Where the heck? What?" After the service, Deacon Abnathy went to Shields like, "Hey man, Austin said, man, you gotta keep your mouth shut." <laughs> My wife didn't know. But she was only but so mad because at the end of the day, do black we just get you just gave up our wealth. That's all we we farmers. We got a little money. It's a thousand dollars. That's every man. You know how much money that is. This is what the great grandson of Ed Shields, who bought the house, who bought land, built the house, and boarded those teachers at Linden Academy where Arthur Reed Lucy went to school, to high school, said. The great-grandson, in January 2022, after they put the house on the historical register, he says three school buses a day. They go by this house on the way to a school named for the principal of Linden Academy. And this is what he said. He said, they don't know nothing about him or the school. 
far as they know, it just dropped out of the sky. And he says, this is the problem. They interviewed him. We don't know our history. These children, what would it do? Maybe it wouldn't do anything, but would it hurt to tell them? Would it hurt to tell them who that who the, who, who the school you at named for and what it means in that little house you go by? Come on, y'all. We got a different attitude. And it's very interesting. Anyway, I'm, I'm gonna get too, let me get too deep in this because we got we got a lot more ground to cover. Now I'm gonna love a few minutes to do it. I want to do this. Arthurine Lucy then, of course, goes to uh University of Alabama. Wait, no. Okay, if you're black, you come out of one of these black high schools that black people have started because they ain't public, and you graduate from high school, Fresno, what do you think your options are if you're a black southerner to go to college? Options when you get out? When you get out of the high school. You can't go to the white schools. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. HBCU. Exactly. Right down the road. Founded in 1878, from where she grew up on that 110-acre farm, Arthurine Lucy, equipped with a first-rate education, enrolled at a school that's still there in the city of Selma, Selma University. I think there's probably at least one person in here right now who did not, who never heard of Selma University. It is an HBCU. It is the home of the Bulldogs, founded in 1878, hashtag unite with SU, Selma University, y'all. Selma University is a school that was started by the CME, the Christian, I'm sorry, the call it Methodist Episcopals, now they Christian Methodist. Some of y'all CME. I'm going to show you a picture. This is from a book called uh, An Era of Progress and Promise. Let's see. Selma University, Reverend R.T. Pollitt was the president at the time. This is from the early first day of the 20th century. That's the that's one of the buildings they built. Founded in 1878. This building had a third has a 1300 person auditorium on the on the second floor and above it dormitory space. Selma University was founded by the CME Church, started by the CME Church. It started at that time. I think that was the sixth university they had founded. A couple of them didn't make it. Several of them are still around. Selma. Some of y'all know about Payne College in Augusta, Georgia. And you may know another one that started, uh, was named for the Bishop of the CME Church. And that would be Bishop Isaac Lane, West Tennessee. Lane College, Payne College, Selma University. You know how long Selma been University? Selma University. <laughs> Selma University, I think I wrote it down somewhere. I don't know what I did with it. But anyway, Selma University was made a university in 1908. It started as the Atlanta Baptist Normal and Theological School. They teaching teachers and preachers. That's the same reason they started Howard. Come on, y'all. Come on. Come on now. Come on. We got to think about this. Selma gives away scholarships. In fact, this is the weekend. This is the weekend of the Selma Bridge Jubilee, right? See, people going down to Selma. And I agree with, with Roland Martin, who says this, and a lot of other people. Look, all you people going down to Selma talking about Dr. King and Selma Bloody Sunday and John Lewis and then come back to D.C. and vote against the damn uh, act. Well, he wouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it. I pray that you get visited by those ancestors because you're a bold, bald-faced liar and an enemy of our common humanity. You want to run down there and take a picture. Well, right across that bridge is where Arthur and Lucy went to go to school. So she enrolled at the University of Alabama. No, wait, no, I'm sorry. Selma University. She got a teaching certificate from Selma University. 
a teaching certificate. I'm sorry. Yeah, Selma University. She got a teaching certificate. She's going to be a teacher. So before University of Alabama, there was Linden Academy, which is a high school. We ain't going to count that. Although to get to college, they had to have high schools that black people built themselves. You know, people always want to congratulate yourselves with how much progress you made. They didn't even have a high school for that child to have been in to be able to go to the University of Alabama. But we took care of that. We got that. And then some university, she goes, did she get a degree? No, she got a teaching certificate. After that, she enrolled at the University of Alabama, and they would not let her. Wait, no, wait, stop. No, wait. Were there any other HBCUs? In oh, my goodness. The child went to Birmingham. And here she is in the mid-90s talking as Vivian. I'm sorry, Arthurine Foster. I keep them in Vivian Long. Arthurine Lucy Foster. That's her married name. Miles class of 19. Miles class of 1952. Wait, she went. She had a degree when she showed up at the University of Alabama. No, she was there trying to get it. She's just a flagship. <laughs> Miles College, yo. That's in Birmingham to this day, and they got a law school. Howard University School of Law, North Carolina Central School of Law, Texas Southern School of Law, Florida A&M School of Law, Miles College School of Law. Miles College got school. Yes. Come on now. I know you want to get right to you. You can roll tide and talk about national championships and Negroes out there sweating and bucking and running and, and Nick Saban making more money than Jesus Christ could have ever called out of making water into wine. And we, but yeah, it's all beautiful. And he's in there in the, in the Aflac commercial with Coach Prime and it's all funny. And <laughs> Nah. Arthur and Lucy with the two universities before she showed up at your raggedy ass school. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Flagship, Selma. flagship. Selma University, still open. Miles College, Miles CME School. I apologize, Miles College is a CME school named for a former bishop of the CME church. Oh yeah, I hear all. Here's the brother, William H. Miles, born a slave in 1828, freed in 1854. He's the one Miles College is named for. I hear all of them Negroes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Selma University was not the CME. Miles College was the CME. Selma was the Black Baptist, including Black women who raised money to Alabama State uh, Convention to build the first new building there, which was for women. It was co-ed from the beginning. Selma University was co-ed from the beginning. Mouse College, co-ed. They wanted women and men to get degrees. Says what? Um, and I won't go into this because she's writing about all kind of uh I mean she's she she gives us she she constantly went back. Now she ended up in Texas. She gets married. Uh she married Reverend Hugh Lawrence Foster, uh, who her husband. And they got married in April 1956, same year where I showed y'all that, that piece is from. She got married, Smith County, Texas. He was a minister. She was for many years in Texas. Then she came back to Alabama. She taught in the Birmingham Public Schools for decades, for decades. Please understand. It's very important to understand this. So she graduated from Linden Academy, graduated from Selma University, graduated from Miles College. And then... She applies to University of Alabama to go to graduate school. 
Hold up. Maybe I missed it. I'm sure I missed it. Uh, Arthurine Juanita Lucy, who was known by family and friends by her middle name, Juanita. Like Juanita Abernathy. That's Ralph Abernathy's wife. Juanita. I know y'all got some of y'all Juanita in here right now. We got a thousand people. Got to be at least one Juanita. You know, black people love Juanita. Was born October 5th, 1929 in Shallow, Alabama in the state northeast corner. Obtained a two-year teaching certificate from Selma University in Alabama before completing her undergraduate work at Miles College. A friend at Miles, Polly Ann Myers, a civil rights activist, suggested that they join together in seeking interest to Alabama. Right! Polly Ann Myers, the other sister who applied. They both got there and the restaurant was like, oh, there's been a mistake. What? We didn't see y'all application. You know, someplace they make you put a picture in now. I was looking for the new book uh, Tamiko Brown-Nagin did on Constance Baker Motley, which would make sense here. Thurgood Marshall and Constance Baker Motley of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund and Arthur Shores, a black lawyer from Alabama who had experienced the civil rights cases, waged a federal court battle on the women's behalf that began in 1953. Now remember, Thurgood Marshall goes to the Supreme Court and Constance Baker Motley becomes the first black woman federal judge. First black woman federal judge. In fact, y'all heard, uh, I, I mean, I, of course I can say it all and will say it all many, many more times and have said it more, many more times in the last uh, three years since we've been talking about her in, in earnest. But Katanji Brown Jackson, I do like the idea of KBJ, although we will say Katanji because it's just nice to say Katanji. Gonna make them people say Katanji. But even though we got problems and some, yeah, well, we can talk about that. Maybe we'll talk about that during office hours. Federal Judge Herbert Grooms ruled in June 25, goes on, goes on, goes on. And then, so they did include the information, but you see how the governance structure is not going to talk about black self-determination in that way, nor is it responsibility. So let me see, can I wind this up a little bit by just making some whole points together? We talked about what happened after she got there, but we didn't talk about what happened after she didn't wasn't allowed to enroll. She already got her undergrad degree. And so when they expelled her, oh, wait, wait, wait. They reversed the expulsion. They rescinded the expulsion. So they expelled her in 56. It was rescinded in, what, 50, was it 58? No. Certainly wasn't 68, no. Couldn't have been 78, no. Oh. They rescinded... Arthurine Lucy Foster's expulsion from the University of Alabama, April the 4th, in April, rather, 1988. Hmm. Professor, why do you think they rescinded her suspension then? What was going on in 88? Well, what had happened between 56 and 88? A whole lot. <laughs> so, right? A whole lot, right? I mean, certainly that game where Sam Bam Cunningham, Randall Cunningham's brother, came and beat Bear Bryant's ass like he stole something at the University of Alabama, prompting Bear Bryant famously to have said, apocryphally, I got to get me one of those. And here we are with Nick Saban leading a contingent of black men like Pat Riley leading the Lakers to national championships. A lot had happened. So integrate. Shit, well, we got to integrate. Hold on. We're going to decide. I want all the 4.0s. And every one of them fast ass Negroes, so we can roll tide. Now, the rest of y'all, y'all go to Alabama State, Tuskegee, Talladega, whatever the hell. Selma University still open. I don't know. Shit, I don't care. Miles College, yeah. But you fast Negroes. And, I, and of the fast Negroes, after we clock you, we're going to give you another test. What? Are you interested in going to class? 
Oh, you are? <laughs> yeah, shit. Maybe you can go to Auburn. Now, Auburn's, I don't want them. All right, fine. Well, yeah. You sure? You sure we can't interest you in? You know what? Let's can we get the welcoming committee to go meet these boys when they come to campus? Yes, uh 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 Lucy and Darlene, and we're gonna need uh mittens over there and Buffy. Could y'all go and meet these boys when they come? Now ask them are they interested in going to class? Okay, and then when the coach meet them later afternoon, did you meet our welcoming committee? Yeah, are you interested in going? Oh, you're not interested. In going? Come come here and sign. You're a five-star recruit. I want no problems. No, let me talk to your mom and them. We're going to make sure they get a quality education. Amen. Come on, Nick. Come on, John Calipari. Telling every parent you go to in the house that you're going to get your child, get their child to the league. And you ain't got to worry about coming to college. You play for me for a semester. And if you're ready, we'll send you because we know you just want to take care of your family. Damn that reading and writing shit. That's for Arthur's Lorene Lucy generation. And them damn black people like her parents and, and like Brother Ed and like all these people that built some of them black women that put that dorm up and some of you, that's for them. But you now, you got opportunity to make some money and literacy. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Leave that to us. We're going to make sure your system is such that we'll put the name of the principal of the high school that Arthur and Lucy went to on the side of a junior high school that's at the bottom of the list of academic performance. And then we're going to make say it's your fault. But hey, we won the national championship. Come on, y'all. Seriously? Are we seriously considering ourselves to be fully informed and active human beings in the world? If we're going to let them run that line on us, let me continue very quickly. So they didn't rescind that thing until 1988 because now they're now, now they in the face-saving mode. We're going to end with this. We're end with this. Let me wind this up. Arthurine Lucy was on the campus of the University of Alabama days before she made transition. Days. She made transition this past Wednesday, the 2nd of March, on the 22nd of February, wait, 25, 26, 27, 28, one, two, five days before she made transition. She was at a dedication. That building, that she was in, then called Smith. They dedicated, they had already put a clock tower up and named for her. They put a plaza for, for Malone up there in Hood. They got, they got stuff, and they got a lot of black people go to University of Alabama, not just football players in 4.0s. And they should go because Arthurine Lucy enrolled at the University of Alabama after years of teaching in 1991. She and her daughter, Grazia. This is what I love about black people. They enrolled at the University of Alabama. I'm sorry, they didn't enroll in 1991. They rescinded the suspension and then she couldn't enroll. I mean, the expulsion, then she couldn't enroll. By then she'd been teaching for years. She's a master teacher. There are interviews with her where she's talking to black audiences, not just black audiences. She talked all over the place. In fact, there's a famous picture of her in New York sitting next to Eleanor Roosevelt at a civil rights rally because then Vivian C, by this time, she traveling. She like an Emmett Till mom. They, they going around. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, man, now, I'm sure we're going to wind this up in a second, but I'm sure there are people sitting here like, why in the hell isn't this leading the stories all over? Because they don't give a damn. And by they don't give a damn, I'm not calling anybody racist. I'm saying there's more important things to talk about 
than what we talking about. That's why we had to build a space to do this. And not just to do it. There'll be black spaces that do it. There'll be other spaces that do it. But to punch through the noise, to build the connections and to have the framework to interpret it so that we can then learn more for ourselves. Because I'm quite sure there are many people in here right now who have connections to some of this, if not much of this historical narrative. So now they rescinded it. She enrolls and in 1991, Gracia, her daughter, and Vivian Malone graduate the same year. Grassley with her undergrad degree and Vivian Malone with her third degree. Master's teacher education, University of Alabama. And then Alabama's like, ooh, all right. So let's name some stuff for around here so we can cover over this. What's that? That's, what, that's your natural body odor. Oh, I see. You're going to get some deodorant now. Okay, you're going to start naming shit. <laughs> Bell Towers and so then, five days before she makes transition, they name the building she was run out of. Kill her, kill her. Oh, by the way, after they got rid of her, they then celebrated. Some of them in blackface. Interesting pictures of them in blackface, these white students. Because they like celebrating stuff, right? It was a celebration in Birmingham uh, in 1963 of the bombing that killed the four girls where they killed one of the two boys that died that day. Right? Johnny Robinson shot. Virgil Ware shot. Yeah, you got to add them to Cynthia Wesley. You got to add them to Addie Mae Collins. Got to add them to Denise McNair. Got to add them to Caroline Robeson. There was six children killed in Birmingham. And them last two, them boys was killed while they were these four white boys out in the street celebrating killing the black girls. I do not forgive none of it. And anybody trying to paper it over, we got a problem. But I'm not going to get distracted. Still pointing these clean glasses. So anyway, so they both graduated in 91. They both graduated in 91 from the University of Alabama. Mama with a graduate degree, adding to her degree. By then, she's a master teacher in Birmingham, and she talks about being a master teacher in these interviews. So they named the building for her five days before she made transition. But watch this. You're going to love this. You're going to love this. Oh, at the dedication, young brother Quinn Kelly, president of the Graduate Student Association at the University of Alabama, thanked her and cited her influence in allowing black students like himself to attend predominantly white institutions. Because that's the history they get. I'm sure he said other things. I ain't seen the speech. I ain't seen a recording. I want to read, maybe get the transcript because I want to see if he talked about the fact that black institutions, uh, uh, black institutions, beginning with her family, produced her. Because that ain't what's important to the social structure. And hey, I'm glad he's there. I know when I went to Ohio State, as we talked about, I've talked about many times, Frank Hale brought us. Frank Hale had been the president of Oakwood. Oakwood's still open. Seven day of Venice, Alabama school, college. Sent he he left there as president of Oakwood, came to Ohio State as vice provost, created the graduate professional and visitation days. And then out of that, the black students created the black graduate and professional student council. And the thing that distinguished Ohio State's group is most of us, the majority of black graduate and professional students, law students, medical students, dental students, social work students, students in all the academic fields, history, philosophy, African studies, you name it. We came from HBCUs undergrad. Arthurine Lucy came from two HBCUs undergrad before she showed up at the University of Alabama, finally got a degree, and they put that in the obituary over there, and they, put, and they named a building for her, but here's the thing that you're going to really love about that building that they named for her. It was named before her for a former Alabama governor who had been the 
a member of the Ku Klux Klan. His name was Bill Graves. The building that is now called uh, Arthurine Lucy Hall was named Bibb's Grave Hall. But guess what? You're not going to like, you, 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 you already know. You already know. Do you know why it's named Arthurine Lucy Hall and not Bibb's, uh, uh, what's, you know why it's named Arthurine Lucy Hall and not Graves Dash Lucy Hall? Because the Alabama Board of Trustees voted to add Arthurine Lucy's name to Graves' name. That's the mm. truth. That happened to that happened today, not 1956. That board said Arthurine Lucy. Let's 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 hurry up and get her before she becomes an ancestor. How old is she? 91, 92? Shit, hurry up, hurry up. Okay, let's add her name. And faculty and some students. I hope a couple of them ball players. I swear to God, I hope so. The story got out, and people outside inside Alabama and out was like, wait, hold on. This dude was a Klansman. And they said, Well, we want to keep his name on there because he is known as governor of Alabama for increasing funding for education in the state and helped everybody. Bill Graves proposed that every white student in Alabama, public school student, receive an upgrade of funding of $100 a head, and that every black student in Alabama receive a upgrade in funding of $10 a head to be able... Wait, wait, what? Yeah! But the, I ain't talking about 1956. I'm talking about 2022. That board of trustees in Alabama... I want y'all to rethink y'all suiting up and playing basketball or running track and shit for these people. What's wrong with y'all? At least had a decency. But that's all right, because if Prime stayed at Jackson State a few more years, and maybe Eddie George and him, and I don't know what my man at Gramlin was thinking. But either way, if we could just get some momentum, y'all worried about the NBA and the NFL and coaching, but the HBCUs are where it's at. If you transform that and these blue chip athletes start going there and then and as you mentioned a couple of weeks ago with the, with our brother J.R. Smith, they take a couple of these black states classes or, or classes on these campuses and begin to think differently. Oh, that's when you're going to see who you're really dealing with. It's all fun and games when they patting you on the fanny and counting their money on the way to the bank. It's quite another when you show up as real competition. That's when you're going to find out how deep this commitment to integration really goes. So they they when the outcry came or they said, well, hell, you know what? We just going to have to sacrifice Bill Graves. Sorry, Bill. And now it's Arthurine Lucy. Arthurine Lucy Hall. All right. That's the campus building that she's na is named for. And she went on to join the ancestors not even a week after that. So they got in under the line. Now, that's all I'm going to say about Arthurine Lucy. But I do want to mention this. There's an election coming up in Alabama at the end of this month. United States Congress primaries. There's a case that was filed in the U.S. Supreme Court this week, Merrill versus Milligan. Merrill is the Attorney General of the state of Alabama. Oh, I'm sorry, not Attorney General, Secretary of State in Alabama. Uh, and this is why I'm going back to the hit dog, Justice Beer, Beer Kavanaugh, Justice Hit Dog Hollard Kavanaugh. And uh, we'll put an Alabama twist on that because uh, some of y'all heard that phrase, another one of them aphorisms that black people use, uh, one of them uh, kind of sayings that you teach children, Old folks would say, uh, when you throw the hot water out the back door, 
It's a bunch of dogs out there waiting to see if it's food you're giving them and the water comes out of the pan and hits the dogs. The dog that gets hit by the scalding water, that's the one that's going to bark. The hit dog hollers. You know, I heard that from my mama who heard it from her mama. And you seen that little house they grew that she grew up in, that cinder block house down there on that farm outside of Phoenix City, Alabama, in Seal, Alabama. Then, you know, when I, I didn't stood as a child at that screen door, like many of y'all looking out there, you see them dogs come out looking for scraps. And what comes out the back is that bath water. The one that gets hit is the one's going to say, rawr, rawr, the hit dog hollers. Well, hit dog Justice Beard Kavanaugh hollered. He hollered when the Supreme Court of the United States ruled this week in John H. Merrill, Alabama Secretary of State versus Evan Milligan and Marcus Castor. Milligan, I'm sorry, Merrill versus Milligan, Merrill versus Castor. They used what they call a shadow docket, the rocket docket, to vacate a emergency stay of or emergency stay of order by the Alabama District Court three-judge panel, which stopped the Alabama legislature from implementing maps based on the 2020 census. Why is voting important? Here's why. Please pay attention. I ain't talking about nobody here. I'm talking about these folks who think voting don't matter, who the judge is don't matter. I'm not going to get no arguments. I'm just going to lay this out. These three judges, two of whom were from the state of Alabama, all three of whom were appointed by Donald Trump, but it was so racist what the Alabama legislature did that even they couldn't save them. And they said this is violating Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The Alabama three-judge district court panel, in hearing, let me just get it straight, in hearing seven days of testimony with 17 witnesses, over a thousand pages of briefs, and having Alabama only defended itself with one expert who was so incoherent on the stand and contradictory that the judges said we could get him no weight. The three court panel said, y'all done drawn in Alabama a map of congressional districts. There are seven congressional districts in the state of Alabama. Okay. There is one congressional district that encompasses most of the black voters in what they call the black belt, that's where our sister Arthurine Lucy is from. Arthurine Lucy uh, Foster is from. That black belt is currently represented by, and I don't know if you've ever interviewed her. Have you ever talked to Terry Sewell, uh, Professor Hunter? No, I have not. I thought about you yesterday because Howard University just passed its charter day uh, anniversary, the anniversary of the signing of the charter in 1867 that created Howard. And the charter day speaker at convocation yesterday was Greg Meeks. And I remember you had Greg Meeks on when yes. you were out there. Yeah, that's a great. Of course, you probably had him on many times. That's the home. Uh, yeah, he's, that's New York. Yeah, no question. No question. In fact, he said he's headed, uh, was it Oslo? He headed over there in this thing at some point. He might, I think he's over there now. I think he left yesterday, yesterday evening. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so I, I mean, I know you have CBC members on all the time. So, uh, yeah, Terry Sewell, good sister. Terry Sewell represents the black, but she's, there's seven congressional districts in Alabama. There's one with majority black, the black belt district. And it is packed because in three court, them three judges, Trump appointed judges, two from Alabama say, hey, yo, 
There's a Voting Rights Act. Section two said you cannot diminish, uh, diminish voting strength of minorities. And in the state of Alabama, which is 29% black by the 2020 census, which means probably 50% black, because you know that census, they jacked that since shout out to Wilbur, whatever it is. Whatever, I'm not talking about Wilbur. Uh, anyway, did you know that 92% of white people, non-Hispanic white people in the state of Alabama, 92% live in a majority white district wait hold on <laughs> wait a minute let me, let me think about it wow. alabama by your count which is an undercount alabama's a third white i mean black yeah and nine out of every ten white people live in a district majority white yeah so where are all the black people shit we stuffed all them negroes in one district yo it's called packing but certainly, you can't get all the black people in. No, we couldn't. So this is what we did. We put as many black people as we could in the in the uh, fifth congressional. That's Selman, Montgomery, all them black. You know, down there where your friend Lucy, uh, author Lucy, has got her name on the building in a plaza. It's very nice. We let her back in school in '88, so she could go with her daughter. This kind of thing. But you know, f you know, we don't really. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, priest brotherhood justice is very nice. It's very nice. Yeah. Well, what about the rest of the black people? Well, we distribute them across three other congressional districts in numbers that won't prevent us from electing who we want. They call that cracking. So some of y'all turn on TV now, you'll see them talking about packing and cracking. That's what they do. Look at the map. We're going to portion this to stop y'all from having representatives that look like you, demographic. Now, we can talk about the politics later, but I mean, you know, because some of them white people, when Arthur and Lucy sat down, said, we for you. So there's some people like that, are always some people like that, but are there enough of them is the question. And what's preventing the rest of y'all from understanding you hurting yourself? That's the other question, but that's neither here nor there, not for today. In this case, Alabama says, oh, we just, you know, we just using computers and it's not racial and we don't mean anything by it. And it dude. Y'all packed all the blacks in that one district, cracked the rest of them to distribute them out over these other districts so they couldn't stop these white boys from getting elected. So you got seven congressional districts and you got one black district. Yeah. And so what the judges said was that the district court level was, okay, that means that black people make up almost a third of the people in the state and have about 14% representation in Congress if we're using race. He said, yeah, but it's just how it turned out. The district court judges, all three of them, Trump appointees, two from the state of Alabama, said, no, this violates Section 2 of the right. You know how racist you got to be? <laughs> to have a Trump appointed judge. All three of them, nah, you can't do this. So what did they do? They did what they've been doing, y'all. This is where something come in. We take Angie Porter and Fadler to hear y'all have this conversation about this. The so-called rocket docket, the shadow docket. This is what they do. Supreme Court. Cause now they got the racist, you know, they didn't, they didn't stacked up justice beard, justice McConnell, McConnell, uh, McConnell Gorsuch and, uh, the handmaid. So they got the numbers. Now we trying to get in this, but how do we get in this state of Alabama immediately appeals? Cause what the court says is y'all can't use those, uh, districts. You got to redraw those lines before the primary. This is, this was a couple of months ago. So what do they do? They wait, they appeal Supreme court. And who do they appeal to in the court? Every justice, they just name a justice to appeal to. And then that justice can take 
on this shadow docket. They call it shadow docket because it's a direct bloodline appeal because it's involving some legal change that is uh, supposed to be enacted immediately. So they don't have to go through the appeals. They're already appealing in court. They're appealing. So it's going to go to the circuit court of appeals. The circuit court level, that's where Kentaji is right now. That's where Michelle Childs will probably now be nominated to take up one of the seats that Kentaji Brown Jackson, Kentaji Brown Jackson, is now going to vacate when she goes to the Supreme Court. And Biden, why don't you put another black? Slide two in there. Let's keep it moving, keep it moving, keep it moving. But that's the next level. District, Court of Appeal, Supreme Court. Supreme Court takes a tiny fraction of cases every year. But on the shadow docket, the rocket docket, wait, they want to change something today? Help, help! Supreme Court's like, help! Who they sent the thing to was Clarence Thomas. Huh. I can't make this up. CT. CT rode the express, turns around, gives it to his uh, his colleagues on the bench. And they rule. They said that while we're waiting on the merits of the case to work its way through the appeal system, the district court told Alabama they got to redraw those lines and they and they put in a state of order for them and say, you got to use these lines. Supreme Court was like, yeah, that emergency stay, we vacating that shit. Y'all use them. Y'all use them lines. Y'all use them seven to one lines for this coming up election. It ain't enough time. It ain't enough time. And so in Merrill, the Merrill case, they just decided this week the same week that Arthurine Lucy made transition, a few days after they named the building for her, which is so substantive, so important. Hmm. Apartheid in Alabama? Shit, we good with that. And so, and I read, I read all of them. So you got Justice Beer. Beer writes a concurrence. So you got Beer, you got Alito. I ain't going to talk about Sam Alito. Sam Alito was so hot to get into the voter thing in Pennsylvania that he told the damn Pennsylvania, uh, the Republicans said, just wait till after the election. And if it's close enough, I won't say it's close enough to steal, but if we need to set aside some votes, and by the way, sequester those votes that you're saying are in controversy in case we need to rule on that. But thanks to what happened in Georgia, and it made Pennsylvania, it took Pennsylvania out of play, and Alito couldn't get his grubby fingers on the election he was the y'all read y'all read the opinion you read the opinion you understand what i'm saying see people think this is why i say people we, we get in debates over vote and not vote and the first thing i say is something about the courts and they say see oh no that's not said, did you read the opinion the answer is always going to be no people who know know what's going on people who don't want to argue theoretical no don't argue no anyway let me continue i don't want to get too sidetracked on that anyway point is this why then if you got the votes and the vote was 5-4. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, 5-4. But everybody, you don't have to write an opinion. Right? Thomas didn't, didn't write anything. The handmaid didn't write anything. Call me Barrett. So, but Kavanaugh wrote and Alito joined him. So why then Thomas, Alito, Kavanaugh, and uh, Gorsuch? Gorsuch. Right. So on the other side, oh, and, and Barrett, five. Why did Kavanaugh write? You won. He wrote because the hot water that Elena Kagan threw out the back door hit him. This is what Kavanaugh said. Let me quote from it. 
He says, I concur in the court stay of the district court's injunction. I write separately to explain my vote and to briefly respond to the principal dissent. Because Elena Kagan, Sonia Sotomayor, Stephen Breyer, who Katanji Brown Jackson clerked for, well, who's the fourth? Who am I missing? Who are you missing? The Chief Justice. Chief Justice John Roberts. Because he tore up his own damn court. Johnny John, John John. Oh, baby, you done torn up your whole damn government. Johnny John was playing. You, it was all good with Hobby Lobby. And that first amendment, amendment, it was all good when you told all the billionaires in the world they could basically rig elections in 2010 with Citizens United. And it was even all good when you took a meat axe to the to the Voting Rights Act in Shelby County versus Holder. Shelby County, what's, what state is that in? Oh, yeah, Alabama. It was all good when you was doing that, but guess what? Oh, and here we give a best supporting actor award to Barack Obama. Still thinking you can make peace with these white nasties, so you go and find the most milk toast, middle of the road white man you can find. And instead of nominating somebody who was on the short list at the time you picked Merrick Garland, who was that? Uh, oh, yeah, Katanji Brown Jackson. Instead of nominating her, so the Hillary Clinton, who people may have held their noses for and voted because she ain't no hero, especially on foreign policy. But would have said if she had said then, well, you know what? If I'm elected, the first thing I'm going to do is renominate Katanji Brown Jackson. Oh, and then, of course, let's give another supporting uh, award to Ruth Bader Ginsburg for staying too long. Well, actually, maybe not because she scared the shadow of Breyer for sure. But the point is this. Roberts was all good running a Boston when it looked like you could still have something called judicial supremacy and respect for the institution of the court. But now you had the madman Trump get in. They done stacked the deck and they've been waging a 50 year war with the Federalist Society to try to figure out how to run this thing. They got now they going to run a Boston. And now Johnny John, John John scared. John John wrote separately to dissent. John joined the four, the three quote unquote liberals because you didn't tow up your courts now. But them other boys can count. Boys and girls can count. And they'll give a damn. They get ready to destroy the left, what's left of the Voting Rights Act. Even the Trump appointees was like, this some racist shit. And then Kagan, in her dissent, was like, really? This what we doing? They decided that months ago. This was timely. They have time to redraw the maps. There were seven days of testimony, 17 experts, thousands of pages of briefs, all, and then she goes through all the numbers, how they just straight did this on straight race. And then Alabama had one pathetic ass testifier on their point, on their point, expert, and he was so incoherent that they couldn't even rely. They they left the court no, no, no choice but to tell them they got to redraw the maps. But Clarence can count. Barrett can count. Beer Kavanaugh can count. Gorsuch can count. And Alito can count. We got five. We don't need you no more, Johnny John. John John trying to step on the side of the angels. Too late, CJ. Too late, Chief Justice. You got a front row seat to the end of the judiciary. And so Roberts is like, yeah, you know, I... Oh, watch, watch this. This is what Justice Beer writes. A little beer. Justice, a little beer. He says... uh, what does he say here? The principal dissents catchy but worn out rhetoric about the shadow docket is similarly off target. Worn out rhetoric about the shadow docket? The sh this is how it works, shadow docket, y'all. That means that, let me just explain it just a quick moment. Like I said, Angie walked you through it better than I could. If at the district court, 
they want a change in the law. And then the people who lose appeal to the Supreme Court bypassing the Court of Appeals, because even though that they will appeal to the district court, I'm sorry, to the Court of Appeals on the merits. In other words, it's going to work its way through the courts. Ultimately, what I'm saying is if the Supreme Court chooses to hear this, they're going to hear this later. It's going to work its way through the courts. But what they're trying to now, what they're getting a chance to do is intervene in a district court order. Alabama's right now was was under a district order to redraw the maps. So, of course, Alabama's going to appeal that to the Court of Appeals, but that's going to take too long. Because what will happen between the time they have to redraw the maps and the time the Court of Appeals hears this case, Professor Hunter? What will happen in between that? Election. Exactly. They try to stop so they can sneak this damn Congress in. With this stacked election. So what they did was rocket docket, send it to the courts. Please, friends with the hoods on, including you, Negro from Georgia, could you stop these people who you thought was going to work in our best white supremacist interests from intervening? Because we got these niggas where we want them. Supreme Court, with pleasure. John Roberts. So I'm I'm sure Sonia sees. I love this is what I love about Justice Sotomayor when she decides to write. I hope Katanji Brown Jackson will have some brilliant opinions. I don't know, but I know one thing for sure: Sonia Sotomayor be bringing the heat. She chose not to write a separate dissent. John Roberts wrote separately, I think, probably because he don't want to. You know, he's still a white nationalist, but yeah, but I do believe in the courts. Well, they don't believe in nothing but ruling. and they, they're gonna they're gonna superheat the judiciary. The judiciary, as far as I'm concerned. So anyway. What you then see happen is Kagan took the ball this time. And she said, first of all, y'all using this shadow docket to rule on things that we will eventually rule on the merits, but by the rules of the Voting Rights Act and by what the what the courts wrote at the district court level, this is not only entirely within the law, it's the only possible ruling. They have to redraw the maps. Justice Beer felt some kind of way because he got hit with that hot water because she's right. So he had to then, his his concurrence is BS, chef's kiss BS. Mm. Oh, it's, uh, it's uh, getting a ruling on the merits. No, and you saying we're using the shadow docket. That's a, that's a, that's catchy, but worn out rhetoric. What do you mean? And he says, well, there, and he tries to apply the test, which is the uh, Thornburg versus Gingles test, which says, you know, if there's going to be a change like this, you have to demonstrate that you know, there's, there's a four-pronged test. Anyway, I won't get into that, get too deep into the legal weeds. But the bottom line is, he says, is they met the test. Kagan is saying, no, they didn't meet the test. And in fact, she lays out how this is a violation of the Voting Rights Act, and they're obvious about it, and the only thing the district court could do. And they're very likely going to be affirmed. But Kagan knows what it is. They stopped. The result is this. They allowed those racist ass maps to be used in Alabama for the election this month. And they are now waiting for the appeals to work its way through so they can end the Voting Rights Act. Now, I don't know how you sleep at night, Tim, mission accomplished, Scott, with your skin and grin ass out of South Carolina, because you're going to line up, you won't po pass no version of protecting voting rights in this country. But you do understand that when you tear it up, it's not going to be rebuilt. It's going to be torn up. So, so we'll, 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 we'll. He's, he's teed up to be vice, the vice presidential candidate. You think, I've heard that. You think so? It's going to be either him or Nimrata. Woo! Who's at the top of the ticket? The boy Trump. out of Florida? 
if he doesn't win? It'll be Trump, right? Trump Scott. Trump Scott. Yo, I, this. Oh, I see you got Harriet on. I see you got Harriet. Yeah, I'm rocking Harriet that. Is, You're rocking Marion, Marion, and Harriet. The, the, come yeah, on. Yeah. Yes. Some of the Negroes would have had to shoot. <laughs> it, it's, Ooh. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Would um, Trump allow Haley to be on the ticket? Because, you know, he feels some kind of way. You know, he's probably, first of all, I hate women. That's why, that's why Scott, I think, is, is going to be the perfect, uh, you know. You know they always cause you know they they blackface everything. Oh, that's you got, true. You got Obama, we got Tim Scott. You know you you got Kamala Harris, we got you know like they're they're always doing that. That's All right, scary. We, we got to vote. That's it. You know I know a we lot. Definitely got to vote. And and I'm not a vote. I ain't no caping for voting. But do y'all see what they doing? <sighs> Let me just thank your uh your uh, intention to go to law school. Because uh, I'm sitting here writing notes that I didn't even, you, you made it very plain. I was not thinking about this. And this is so important. And it's happening in real time, right in front of our in faces. Some of you in Alabama talking to Gary Chambers about Louisiana, Alabama. Yes. These, these states that are on the precipice of, of having more of us than them. And we That's engage right. more. We vote more than anybody else. And they know this. Yes. They are systematically disenfranchised in these states in particular because these are the states that are vulnerable. They saw what happened in Georgia when we show up. North yes. Carolina and even Texas, Harris County, where they have all of those judges, that's on the on the precipice of, of, of a shift as well yeah, when is. we show yeah, up. So we yeah, have to show up in numbers that we couldn't even imagine for a midterm where very few people show up because they're showing up. They because they up. understand the importance of these local elections and that's right. what it means to be able to vote and gerrymander and jerry rig and and was it what was it crack and pack? Yeah, they call it cracking crack and, uh, and packing, packing and cracking. You get as many of us in one place and then you crack the rest of us out to be in a number that can't affect the election. Well, time. And then you're right; it's all over the country, not just the south. And if y'all go to the polls, and when you go, remember Arthurine Lucy. Remember Arthur and Lucy Foster. Remember her. Remember her parents. Remember the institution she came from. Remember the black people who sacrificed everything. Remember the black people who came out of enslavement and bought property and created the place that she could go to high school for. And the churches, the Baptists that created Selma University, the CME that created Miles College. Yeah, okay, University of Alabama, whatever. Because y'all are still a school that produces these people who end up in these uh, Alabama state legislatures through something they call in the state of Alabama at the University of Alabama, the machine, which is the fraternity and sorority network, the historically white fraternities and sororities and all those clubs in Alabama, where they literally reproduce them white boys and girls who go to the legislature to steal elections, to destroy that. Y'all remember that when you go to the polls in, in Alabama, when you go to the polls in, as you say, Louisiana and Mississippi, when you go to the polls in Kentucky, when you go all over, when you go, and if you're not in the United States, as you bang on your governments to create more equitable space, the, Authorine Lucy is not a name should be known just in the United States. We know that. There are Authorine Lucy Fosters all over the world. And they all aren't, they aren't just black people. But when you do engage in participation in the government, I'm not saying don't be a revolutionary. God knows. But I'm saying there are ways to do this that involve more than just one way. Yes. You've got to do that. And while we remember, we have to remember, we have to come back together, remember yes. our 
ancestors pull on the, that knowledge and come together because as nations are falling and empires are crumbling, the one thing that they uh, didn't count on is that blackness would uh, never go. Uh, Bugs right. Bunny never can be killed. So can't be killed. Let's 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 remember that, Dr. Carr. Thank you so much. I Professor love you immensely. Thank you. I love you too. Uh, see some of you Nubians tomorrow and uh with Med uh, Maroon's Medicine Chest. See you Maroon's in office hours on Monday. See yes. you in the Metanetra class on Tuesday. And Tuesday, man, those glyphs, people are sharing their glyphs. I'm like, oh, look at this. We have some artists in the building, but also there is there's something, even even my my uh, glyphs look good. I and I'm I'm not really <laughs> you better tell you better show it. Yes, I'm gonna share, I'm gonna share. All right, please.